I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> the Bruce Lee season. There have been superheroes, supervillains, and super movies, but there has never been anything like karate and kung fu. <laughs> Bruce Lee, he's the man with the fists of fury, karate, and kung fu. The new screen excitement you've been waiting for. Introducing the incredible heroics of Bruce Lee. Every limb of his body is a lethal weapon against an army of men, the most sensual of women, and the most savage of beasts. The explosive combination that gives you the biggest kick of your life. Fists of Fury. This episode was commissioned by Pascal Dooley, who originally wanted us to play The Beginner's Guide. But then someone said to talk about that, we absolutely had to at least have a passing familiarity with the game creator's previous game, The Stanley Parable. Both of them are PC games, esoteric explorations as ways of telling a story. And I don't know what was up on that morning, but Stanley rubbed us up in all the wrong ways, like sandpaper on the helmet. And when we were finally done being told we were just monkeys pressing buttons in an office, we moved on to the game that we had been commissioned to play and couldn't. It was an obtuse labyrinth and information wasn't going into our heads. We weren't engaged, we weren't enjoying, we weren't getting anything out of it. Sharon cried and I ground my teeth. In short, folks, don't ask us to play experimental PC games and talk about them. I don't care how much people rave about them in the PC community. That is not our medium. So let's talk about some movies instead. After we turned down the beginner's guide, Sharon and I were tasked with talking about the second major film Bruce Lee was involved with, Fist of Fury. But considering the spotty production information available and the absence of a lot of things that we tend to hone in on in our show, in kung fu films in the early 70s, bearing in mind we took years to even talk about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and we absolutely love that dense, rich character drama, we decided to make this a cinematic journey through all five Bruce Lee films, from The Big Boss in 1971 through to Enter the Dragon two short years later in 1973, released just after his death, at the moment that he tragically and ironically hit the big time in the West. This is one of at least two Bruce Lee shows. The second will be our promised main event on the 1993 film Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, which is a dramatised biopic. In that we can talk more about Bruce Lee the man, the man behind the camera. Here we are talking about what audiences could see up on the big screen, Bruce Lee the legend. And we really pulled out the stops this time. Just buying Fist of Fury on Blu-ray on its own was pricey enough. And we always want to bring you our account based on an HD experience. I consider standard definition DVD to be substandard quality in 2020. And it needs relabeling to low definition. 
if everyone is streaming in HD, that becomes the standard by definition, surely? You would think. So we bought the five-disc Blu-ray box set of all of these films, and we set aside five evenings in a row to watch one each. Now, the only reason we did this for the price of one commission and was because we weren't able to deliver on The Beginner's Guide. Usually we won't go, yeah, we'll watch five films for your $150. This, that's crazy. But I had only seen Fist of Fury once, and Sharon had never seen any of them. Both of us remembered scraps of Enter the Dragon, so this was really a first for us, too. And it's definitely not for everyone as an experience, so we figured we could bring you all in on this. We will be telling you about the ups and downs of watching five Bruce Lee films in a row, and which film is pretty much a must-see on this list, and which is one of the worst pieces of cinema, if you can even call it that, that we have ever seen. We could do a third Bruce Lee show. It depends if there's a Bruce Lee film in the Ip Man Legend series, or some other related film down the road. We shall see. I mean, he's been in loads of... Like, he's been featured as a uh, fictional character, uh, a fictionalised version of himself. People have been making Bruce Lee movies ever since his death. Most of them not great. Mm, Like It would take something that's like, no, this is fantastic, and it redresses the balance of, well... One of the main reasons we are doing this is last year's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We mentioned on our show that we personally were annoyed at a few of Tarantino's decisions in that film. His fictional white American stuntman gets challenged to a fight by a fictionalized, arrogant, jerk-ass version of the real-life Bruce Lee, who, bear in mind, was maybe the only Asian international superstar until Jackie Chan in the late 1990s. Bear in mind, this film is set in 1969. Of course, Brad Pitt's character is so tough that he beats this guy who was famous for being great at fighting. And that felt obnoxious, unnecessary, unprofessional, and unkind. Especially when Quentin has made a career of worshipping other 70s stars like Harvey Keitel, John Travolta, Pam Greer, Franco Nero, and... Lest we forget, the white man who was cast in the TV show that Bruce Lee co-created to bring attention to Chinese martial arts, a role originally intended for Lee himself until the studio went with a non-Oriental David Carradine. The show was Kung Fu, and these discrepancies make Quentin look like a bit of a dick. Indeed. Because that's really the only time that Bruce is ever in that movie. It would We mentioned at the time it would have contextualized it a bit if Bruce was a main character throughout. And this was just a one-off moment of his arrogance boiling over. But Tarantino had no interest in telling a story about Bruce Lee. He was there to serve this white guy. This guy's so tough, he could beat Bruce Lee. Well, he didn't even have to be a main character. I think we said at the time, if they'd just put a bit more in of him training Sharon Tate and exhibiting a slightly different a side to A couple it. of dramatic scenes, just some something. Absolutely. Yeah. But no, willy-waving, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. So uh, whatever you think of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, we're moving on to do this, just as a... I don't, I don't even think this will redress that balance because it requires everyone who saw that film to listen to this, and unfortunately we don't have those numbers. But let's look at what Bruce did after the Green Hornet, when he would have fought the fictional Brad Pitt in a studio backlot and fictionally lost. Let's look at what 
came after he had to watch Carradine stalk the West as a Western man gifted in the Eastern arts. Let's look back to the time that Lee was tracked down by Chinese producer Raymond Chow to star in movies Back Home, where everyone knew the Green Hornet as the Cato show. And if we get any of this history wrong, forgive us, we are very familiar with the dramatised Dragon the Bruce Lee story, which itself plays a little fast and loose with the facts. So let's start with the big boss. And I know it wasn't a Shaw Brothers presentation, it was Raymond Chow. I just like that piece of music. So this was made in 1971, and uh, we have relatively little to say about this one because most of it is Bruce Lee free. It's a cock tease of a picture. <laughs> he turns up and he is uh, playing a man named Cheng Chao, who is a visitor, a young man who, along with his uncle, travels from Guangdong, China, to Pakchong, Thailand, to stay with his cousins. Before departing, he swore an oath to his mother to not get into any fights, which explains which why this is such a cock tease of a movie. This is made legitimate by Cheng wearing his mother's jade amulet necklace to serve as a reminder to the oath he swore. Does he have that snatched off him at some point? He does, yeah. And I think that kind of is a reflection on why he's so low at the end of that movie. He mm -hmm. has the big fight for a very good reason and is then kind of, he just sits there and lets the police take him away and yeah. feels incredibly bad about the fact that he's broken this oath. So this is directed by Lo Wei, who also directed uh, Fist of Fury, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Um, and it's like, first of all, we've been watching a lot of uh, really great restored Blu-rays of older films. So uh, we, we can make they can make 80s cinematography look like it was shot yesterday with 80s actors. It's weird because um, it, it, it looks it can look fantastic. It's like going to the cinema to see, a you know, again, beautifully restored print. And it draws you in. Unfortunately, the equipment they were using for, I'm going to say, most of these films. Mm. Some are worse than others, but yeah. Yeah. Barring, I think, Enter the Dragon, which had a little bit more money spent on it. But even then. Mm. Um, well, Enter the Dragon was the only one that was done with Hollywood money. Yeah. But obviously, we'll talk about that later. But I think as well, it's not just the quality of the equipment. There is what appears to be patchy competence at best yeah in the production the crew in general yeah. yeah the uh the, the people behind the camera just the dp uh, such as like they, they did have dps i was checking out their names mm -hmm. um just to one of the films has a real problem just with at the beginning with focus pulling where it's like everything everything every time bruce lee walks to the middle of the screen and stands there the screen goes soft because the focus was off mm. like, like little things that show that um these people involved had not studied and studied and worked out a very precise, disciplined way of managing their filmmaking. We're coming to this off the back of the Stanley Kubrick season where nothing was ever out of focus. Absolutely. Unless nothing Stanley was ever deemed less it. less than exactly how Stanley yeah. wanted it to look. But so we're then, going from extreme order to extreme chaos. Yeah, to a point. But you have to allow for the fact that this was a developing industry mm. And was being put together by people who had a lot of love for film, but were literally teaching themselves yeah. as they went along. And I think if you if you kind of mentally frame it as these are effectively the student, student films of films, China, yeah. yeah, 
then it's honestly what they managed to achieve that there is a coherent narrative from A to B for most of them is pretty impressive um, they, they might not be an especially fascinating narrative, but it's it, yeah. it's there and it's it's competent for the most part. And I I am certainly the the early ones. I am I am willing to forgive the fact that they don't always seem to know where the zoom button is. <laughs> so as we said, he visits Thailand to live with his adopted family and work in an ice factory. And it's the ice factory is used as a front to smuggle heroin in the ice, which you spotted. You were like, what's in the ice there? It looks yeah, like it's... it looks like the world's biggest ice lolly mould. Yeah. There's like this long strip of white inside the ice. Mm. It's not exactly subtle. Yeah. And effectively, it's like the Thai mafia are controlling this thing with, uh, you know, some, some guys at the top. And everyone's very knife happy. Like everyone, like when they come at Lee... Uh, I'm practice my stabbing. <laughs> they've got... Knives out. And uh, effectively what Lee does is he visits and then he watches other people fight mm. and sort of like goes, oh, this is not something I really want to be doing. Yeah. And he just sort of hangs around in the street and some fights break out and conversations break out. And Yeah. Well, one, one thing that seemed... I don't want to credit it with too much intent at this stage, but one element that I thought was quite interesting was the the fact that when he starts out, Obviously, there's the oath to his mother not to fight. But there's also this element of, it's not really my place to get involved with this. This is not my country. Um, I'm staying with my family and I don't want to get them into trouble. And I'm low on the pecking order. It's it's not really up to me. No, I'm me. He's low. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. Um,. And it's not until he he ends up proving such a competent and impressive worker that he gets promoted to a some kind of senior position. Mm-hmm. And at that stage, assistant to like, the original manager, something like that. Yeah. And at that stage, he's like, okay, now it's my job to deal with this mm-hmm. because obviously it's it's hurting the people who are actually just trying to work. I think when he finally gets into a fight, the repercussions are that his family members and friends start turning up dead with these golden knives embedded in their chests. They kill everyone. They Kaiser Soze this thing. They even kill a kid. And there's like yeah. this little boy that, that, that Bruce Lee then cries over because they've just gone, yep, definitely going to do this. And it's one of those, I mean, this is very much kind of a revenge fantasy thing where it's like if you don't fight to take down these terrible people, they will do terrible things. And as a result of his inaction, terrible things occur. Yeah. But I I like the underpinning sort of message of when people in authority are doing harm to people who are under their thumb, if you are capable of fighting back, that is something that you need to do. Even if at the end of it all you turn yourself in or accept the consequences for whatever you've done, you still have a degree of responsibility to deal with the issue. Mm. It's one of the better reasons for let's have somebody who can do martial arts kick the crap out of everybody. Mm. So at the uh, very end, uh, with all of everyone he cares about, apart from uh, a lady named... (laughs) It even says on Wikipedia... um, Chow Mei, a typical damsel in distress, Cheng's only female cousin. 
at the end, he just fights all of the hoods with uh, uh, knives and uh, does he just kill them all? I think he he fights them all off. I don't know whether they are all confirmed dead, but he deals with all the henchmen and then has a big fight with the big boss. Yeah. I was always under the impression that this was some sort of James Bond um, type uh, film where the big boss was like the Doctor No of this uh, series. And I actually wasn't too far off with one of them. I was going to say that these. comes later. Yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, he's just the boss of an ice plant who uh, is, is smuggling heroin. And there's a, a, again, a really patchy final battle where every time they leap into the air and sort of intercept each other, the picture goes really dark. Mm. And. Um, well, yeah, because they shot all the ca- all the angles from one way yeah. at one time of day, and all the angles from the other way at much time later of in the day. day, and it's darker. Yeah, and then they're constantly cutting them back and forth. But again, you can kind of mm. allow a little bit for that. You can allow a little bit, but it does make for some hilarious moments. Though that one guy gets whacked in the head, and then goes ah, and then it cuts for a moment, and then the actor then puts his hands over his head mm-hmm. and squashes down a blood pack, which then makes blood come out of his head. But, like, the join between the two shots is not the least bit fluid. It's like, bang! Okay, positions, squash! And they actually, they do manage to do that much more fluidly later on in Fist of Fury. Yeah. That's when a dude gets knocked on the head with some nunchucks. Mm. And it it is very important to kind of hone those particular effects for later, like once yeah. you again, this is the student film. This is the Super Eight. I, I was just about to say that the seeing them in such close proximity, you can see Big Boss to Fist of Fury mm. as being like the Super Eight, the Bottle Rocket. This is the early day stuff of um, the El Mariachi. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Of, of um, directors who would become much more experienced and would then remake. More or less exactly the same film, mm. but with better techniques and um, yeah. better editing. My God, yeah, the editing needed to improve. But this still isn't the worst of the bunch. Oh, it's, no. It's, oh, no. Oh, heavens no. <laughs> it's mostly watchable. It's not something that I'd suggest tracking down. And like I said, the actual the transfer quality from you know the original materials, that they, they were never particularly fantastic in the first place. It is not going to look like Clockwork Orange. No. No, but it is... If Actually, even Clockwork Orange looks, looks pretty terrible. It is not going to look like Barry Lyndon. No. Um, <laughs> but if you are interested in seeing how uh, the, the filmic practice can progress just with time and, and doing it multiple times, it's worth seeing this in comparison with Fist of Fury. Yeah, I suppose. Do not expect to be thrilled and entertained. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, you may get something out of it. And the important thing is that Bruce Lee's screen presence is definitely established here. It's like you, you know when he turns up, even if you know nothing about Bruce Lee at all. Mm. Like by osmosis in our culture, you'd have to have ne- like, never heard of even martial arts to, to not look at this guy and go, well, that's a Bruce Lee type character who's going to start some fights at some point later, or at least respond to some fights. And he has those flashing eyes of his, which just look like he's able to, you know, convey that conflict of I want to fight, but I must not. Mm. He's he's charismatic as all hell, just by standing there, frankly. Yeah. Although there is a very weird moment where he appears to be fantasizing about his cousin. Yeah. He goes to a dinner party and gets drunk and there's a woman there who's flirting with him and he keeps kind of flashing back to images of his uh, hair-braided cousin. 
they were very close. Mm. Now, bear in mind, we've been watching the descendants of uh, Fist of Fury a lot in the past few weeks. We watched Ip Man 2 and 3, and a few uh, months ago we watched Master Z. Those are some genuinely phenomenal films, and Master Z looks nothing short of beautiful, directed by Yen Wu Ping, and it's, it is tough to step back in time to the very early basic. It's falling down the longest snake in Shoots and Ladders. And specifically also, like Bruce Lee is fantastic to watch on screen, but Donnie Yen is something more. There's something about the way that that man moves, and uh, especially like with the choreography and the shooting, and they've had decades, nearly 50 years to establish since then how to shoot a scene. And we've seen our share of crap martial arts as well, but when you've been to the tippity-top and just been overawed by someone's ability and, and the technical mastery behind the camera. It's hard to be absorbed by something when all of the technical hiccups and ropiness is in the way. Yeah. And just the amount of learning that was required at this stage. I suppose it would be the equivalent of getting really involved in a fantastic contemporary JRPG and then going back and starting playing Final Fantasy VI on the Super Nintendo. Absolutely a classic, but not what you were just playing. There's also a tone problem for the big boss. Remember we mentioned the murdered child? This follows so hot on the heels of a bit where Bruce Lee throws a man through a wall, creating a hole of a cartoon. Oh my god. It's hilarious. It's like... And right. it was intended to be hilarious. The only way I can describe this is, you know the bits in Roadrunner where... Wiley Coyote runs through a wall and leaves a coyote-shaped yeah. hole behind him. They do. They have that, but for a man. Hmm. That's not how holes work. You throw somebody through a wall, what you get is a mess. Hmm. Overall, though, uh, the big boss feels like a bit of a waste of Bruce Lee. Hmm. The uh, uh, you're going to hear that a lot throughout this because it's a motif. Um, because they didn't really know what they were doing and they didn't have time to get it together for... He didn't have that much time left. Mm, yeah. But everybody's got to start somewhere. It's just a shame that he couldn't have started, I suppose, in an industry where the technical side of things, people already mm. knew what they were doing. I think he'd have been showcased much better under those circumstances. It feels like uh, if they had cultivated this industry and, and polished it up over a decade or so prior to attempting to show these films in the West. He could have been a, uh, an excellent transitionary actor to, to get that stuff across. As it turns out, he was, but it went retroactively. Mm. It went to the West because he was so impressive rather than the actual industry was so impressive and he could showcase that. Well, that's the thing. They needed a, a genuine screen presence star to be able to sell what they were producing yeah. in Hollywood. And he needed Hollywood experience to be able to be properly shown for what he could do. And unfortunately, he didn't lo live long enough for those things to cross over. So they had the star, but not the technical aptitude. And then they had eventually the technical aptitude, but not the star. Mm. 
So Fist of Fury, if we move on to 1972, a year afterwards, uh, there was uh, some discrepancy in the title. Fist of Fury was accidentally released in the US under the title The Chinese Connection, uh, which was a means of tapping into the popularity of The French Connection, starring Gene Hackman, released in the US the year before in 1971. Accidentally? I don't understand. Did you trip? Right. It shouldn't have been called The Chinese Connection. It was intended for to be used for the US release of another Bruce Lee film, The Big Boss. So Fist of Fury was called right. The Chinese Connection. The I've Big Boss you. was supposed to be called The Chinese Connection, right. which also involved drug smuggling. However, the US title for Fist of Fury and The Big Boss were accidentally switched, resulting in Fist of Fury being released in the US under the title The Chinese Connection until 2005, when The Big Boss was released as Fists of Fury. Oh, my God. So Americans were watching Fists of Fury that was actually The Big Boss, The Chinese Connection that was actually Fist of Fury. So the admin was incompetent as well. <laughs> yes. Just but the, it, it doesn't... Dripping with incompetence at either end it of the, the Pacific Ocean. any sense to call The Big Boss The Chinese Connection because it takes place in, in Thailand. Thailand. <sighs> He's unstoppable. Unbeatable. Unbelievable. He's Bruce Lee, the master of karate, kung fu, delivering that Chinese connection. Bruce Lee, the oriental superstar who exploded across the screens of America in the phenomenally successful Fists of Fury, is back to defend the honor of his nation and the love of his woman. Using his furious fists and superhuman strength, he breaks them up, smashes them down, and kicks them apart. Bruce Lee, the karate kung fu king, delivers the death blow of the Chinese connection. And no notably so, this is uh, um, the one which has a lot of Thai actors in it, and mm. a lot of the people that uh, Bruce Lee uh, kicks the ass off are not necessarily from Hong Kong or no. China. I suppose him and his family are Chinese, that's the Chinese connection. Mm. Yeah. So, Fist of Fury 1972, immediately better quality film image and presentation. I was amazed. It's the same director, Lo Wei. Yeah. Which just, again, the whole student process. You do something and it's not great, but you do it, and then next time you do it better. But Lo Wei didn't do it next time, so it was different again. Mm. If it had been like uh, uh, like slowly getting better and better over five films, all directed by the same uh, and, and put together by the same team, then yeah, it would be like uh, Leica. Mm. Yeah. Just even if the films themselves, the stories weren't necessarily sequentially better than each other, the technical aptitude goes up and up. Mm. 
So it starts off the intro has an Ennio Morricone style score. It's it very does. much a spaghetti western. And this is the first one that really made me think of Tarantino. Chinese-made martial arts movie that has tropes and overtones of a Western. Mm. Like an American cowboy Western. That blend felt really engaging to me and it also kind of made me feel a bit like is this something that Lee himself was very into the idea of and he influenced the director in it considering that that was essentially what he wanted to do for Kung Fu mm. Raymond Chow producing again uh, I think almost all of these were distributed by Golden Harvest I'm not sure about Enter the Dragon mm. I think that was a different production company and he specifically had to leave Golden Harvest behind yeah. to go do that uh, but Golden Harvest are the guys who lost all the footage from mm-hmm. Game of Death so understandable mm. nasty business filmmaking Footage gets lost all the time. Uh, The film was produced uh, by the Orange Sky Golden Harvest Film Production Company, still in its infancy at the time. So yeah, Golden Harvest went on to produce a whole bunch of films, including Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the 1990 film. I remember that because very specifically, no other studio would touch them. But they were also behind uh, Jet Li films like Once Upon a Time in China, one and two. A film in 1995 called Rapist Beckon. Hmm. But it seems like they uh, produced 75 films just in 1995. That's just one of them. Another of them was Iron Monkey, which is a stone-cold martial arts classic. Also Naked Killer. Bunch of the police story films. Though, interestingly, they really slowed down after the 90s. If you look at this, um, like I said, 1995 is like 75 films. Mm. Uh, 2002, four films. Only three of, only one of which has a Wikipedia page. 2003, one film. 2010, one film. 2015, one film, which mm. does not have a Wikipedia page. They seem to have trickled off. Yeah. So in Fist of Fury, it's set in 1940s Shanghai. And again, there's actually quite a lot of similarities with the original Ip Man starring Donnie Yen who I believe has actually played this character of Chen Zhen at one point in one of the many remakes and re-attempts at Fist of Fury. This is a film that has been sequeled and remade more times than most people can count, and pretty much everyone has played Chen Zhen. Okay. But this was the prime Chen Zhen. Mm. So he returns to the Jingwu school to marry his fiancée. However, he learns that his master, Hu Yanjia, has died, apparently from illness, which devastates Chen. Uh, There's this wonderful uh, shot of... He comes in in this incredibly striking white suit in the rain, finds out his master's dead, and during the funeral, like, dives into the coffin and starts clawing at it. Master! It's uh, it's very melodramatic and kind of gothic as well. Mm. But uh, like I say, he's this... Like, your eye is drawn to this guy in the white suit while everyone else is um, standing around looking miserable. Mm. And during the funeral, some people from the Japanese dojo in the Hongkao district arrive to taunt the Jingwu students. 
Wu En, a translator and advisor for the Japanese dojo's grandmaster. So he's the he's a Chinese man who he's is working for the Japanese. Has dojo. sworn fealty to Japan. So he's like uh, Samuel L. Jackson in Django Unchained. That's the implication. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of um, symbolic nationalistic tension hmm. in this film, and I think that's possibly hence again. Uh, it, man. Yeah, one of the things that makes it feel more significant than The Big Boss, I think, is that it's trying to be about something. Yeah. So Wu En is the translator and advisor for the Japanese dojo's grandmaster, Hiroshi Suzuki, uh, who certainly is the villain of the piece. He taunts Chen by slapping him on the cheek several times and daring him to fight one of Suzuki's protégés. They present a sign to Jingwu School, as in a big... They, they had it framed, they had it made and framed, and they wrap it in brown paper and go, we got you a present. And then they tear off the wrapping paper, and it says in kanji, sick man of East Asia. As in, you're all sick. And apparently, uh, since the, um, the, the master died from illness, this is a, a horrendous slight against their honour. Well, the implication is that... Uh China is weak. weak and sickly in comparison to the strength and uh, potency of Japan. Yeah. Describing the Chinese as weaklings in comparison to the Japanese, the protege taunts the Jingwu student to fight him and promises, I'll eat those words if any Chinese here dare to fight and defeat me. Chen Zhen, Chen Zhen Bruce Lee, wants to retaliate but is prevented from doing so by Fan Jingsha the most senior student in the school. So he's basically warned, do not fight. Do not take the bait on this one. See, this, I think... Because they're going, chip, 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 chip. Basically. This is one of the most significant differences, I think, between his character in The Big Boss and and his character in uh, Fist of Fury, is that he's he's playing it much more passionate and Mm. out of control. Oh, he's a barely held in check ball of rage. Exactly. In The Big Boss, there's this this constant kind of uh, overlay of he promised his mummy wouldn't Mm. fight. But he's also kind of bewildered. He restrains himself. And in Fist of Fury, everybody around him is constantly having to restrain him from emotional outbursts. Not necessarily physically, although they do physically have to pull him off the grave at the, mm. his master's funeral but everyone else is telling him don't fight because don't retaliate because don't strike back it's not mm. the right time it's not appropriate and blah blah and that i think is one of the the engaging elements of this this character that he always seems to be carrying within him whether or not that is directly reflected in the narrative of the story there's always this sense that he's this kind of you know barely contained ball of fury like i said <laughs> that is just waiting he's for just a fist waiting to, to explode out. yeah exactly and and i think that's that's part of where this charisma comes from because that a distinguishes fist, him. would you say of fury indeed <laughs> But that's that's partly where this charisma comes from because it, it makes him stand out against these the the people who are trying to hold him back. Mm. So shortly afterwards, Chen Zhen goes to the Hongkao Dojo along alone to return the sign. He winds up he winds up fighting. He turns up with the sign. And look, does he like kick it and and smash it and say that's what we think of your fucking sign or um, something along those lines? Effectively, there's a lot more exchange before that, um, but yeah. 
Yeah. And there's a lot more. Like, we watched all of these that we could in the original Cantonese language. Mm. Uh, Enter the Dragon, we were not permitted to. It's got to be English or nothing. Yeah. Well, it, it was filmed in English. Yeah. Most of the, the dialogue was done in English anyway. Um, but they had to dub a couple of the characters who are obviously speaking Chinese mm. but have been dubbed over. Um, but the, yeah, he, he turns up and is like, they're like, are you here to meet the challenge? And he says something along the lines of, I'm the worst student at that school and I heard that your martial arts was fantastic. So I've come over here so that you can teach me how to fight better. And yes, teach me. the end result of this is he smacks the picture over somebody's head mm. and tears up the paper and makes them eat it. I think one guy first like sort of comes over and goes, hmm, hmm, hmm. And then Bruce Lee, I think, beats him without even looking like there's one guy runs up and grabs him from behind and Bruce is just like he does that a lot I've noticed that's one of his signature moves someone tries to jump him from behind Mm. and he backhands them in the face and then the stomach without looking yeah he has I think we mentioned this before he has a particular peculiar way of fighting where he's kind of uh, he's a cat really you know how tomcats fight where they go at each other yeah he's freaking out his opponent by shrieking mm, yeah I've, I've referred to him as Tom Catting mm. several times as we were watching these movies and that's exactly what he does and it's a very dramatic and unnerving way of fighting which obviously threw western audiences who are like what is going on but the thing is it's become such a uh, an integral part of how Chinese martial arts are viewed mm. that I mean, the the sheer number of, and not even necessarily in film, because I think there are other uh, schools of of stage martial arts that have definitely taken over and become more relevant and prominent than the the style that Bruce Lee brought over to the West when he did Enter the Dragon. But the the number of video game characters in in fighting games who are kind of stylized on his approach and look mm. and all the rest of it. Martial law and forest law in the Tekken series are literally Absolutely. just Bruce Lee, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, they seem to be totally based on him. And I Fei think, Long in Street Fighter. And I think where he's become this sort of part of the, the international consciousness, it's been through that more mm. than it has been through his films. Yeah, it feels like people are more used to seeing Bruce Lee parodied or referenced than any of these five films. Yeah. And this the average kid that... doesn't sit down and go, I've got to watch Enter the Dragon. This is the one that the Americans liked. Yeah, this was something that, that has always kind of been in the back of my mind about Bruce Lee. And it, it only really hit home when we were looking up the background of Game of Death. But there's whenever more than that a bit. anyone has a conversation about... Uh, digitising actors Mm -hmm. and I remember it cropping up when they were doing Lord of the Rings and there's been a couple of other events uh, uh, like big event movies where they've used digital elements of actors and they're always Rogue One with Tarkin yeah there always seems to be a conversation around well what happens if we take the digital image of a dead actor and do things to them without their permission their estate's permission Mm. blah de blah and Bruce Lee is the example that's always given and now I know why yeah not just from Game of Death he's been had his image manipulated and taken and moved around and and he's become this higgledy-piggledy 
uh, like he's a ghost in the machine. Like mm. he, he's Bruce Lee the legend so far outstrips Bruce Lee the man. Yeah, yeah. Which is, in a way, incredibly sad and in a way incredibly fascinating mm. that, that what people think they know about him has become more him and how he's remembered than what he may ever actually have been. Yeah. So uh, he ends up fighting all of the uh, uh, Japanese students one by one. And they do that thing where they like with Van Damme, that they establish it here. Each one attacks him one by one, and everyone else stands in the background going, nya, 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 nya. Like, let's not actually coordinate this attack. You run at him. And I- like, dude, just if you all dogpile him at the same time, he can't hit you all at once. It's as someone said on uh, Twitter: "Live life like you're uh, no, live life with the abandon of the nineteenth guy to attack John Wick with a knife in a particular fight." <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but the actual framing of when he's surrounded by all of these guys in in, in, in Japanese sort of karate geese, and they're all sort of it's it, they're in a circle. That's something Tarantino riffed on for Kill Bill. Absolutely. But it's a genuinely classic cinematic image because mm-hmm. it's one guy surrounded by loads of different guys. He's wearing black, they're wearing white. So there's this great kind of... Um, that's in, in this case, he's wearing very, very dark blue. Uh, but uh, there's a great contrasting image there. And it's stark. It's mm-hmm. almost Kubrickian in terms of its visual language. Honestly, the, the visual stylings in Fist of Fury, especially when you consider the fact that this was Way's second film. Yeah. Um, or at least it was his second film that he'd done with Bruce Lee. I don't know if he did other stuff that we don't know about. But he... He did Brothers 5, The Big Boss... Uh, something called Vengeance of a Snow Girl, which doesn't okay. have a Wikipedia page, right. and so Fist of Fury was his Fist fourth. Fist of Fury was his fourth film, but he'd only been filmmaking for two years, and he really does have numerous scenes in this which are incredibly striking just in terms of what you're looking at. You broke my smolder. My smolder. I've, I've put down my the smolder here as a bullet point because he does have this smolder the whole way through. Like, like we said, he's angry in this, so you've got a lot of shots of his striking eyes as he moves across the screen. And... Um, I also noted that, uh, again, in comparison with Ip Man, there's a lot of just like punch, 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 and like one guy goes down, one guy goes down, kick, 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 and he was famed for moving so fast the camera could barely keep up with him. So it's like, deal with this guy, deal with this guy. And it made me realise how different the kind of martial arts that we are used to go and play out um, because we're so used to Yen Wu Ping, and Yen Wu Ping's fights are very much block, parry, block, and, and hands doing... You know how the, the the Matrix fighting and the Crouching Tiger and the sort of hand block, da, 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 parry? It's fencing. It's... Uh, Wu Ping describes it as having a conversation with your bodies. And there's very little of what we know as, as, as Wu Ping-style fencing, to the point where I would really have loved to see Yen Wu Ping mm. direct Bruce Lee mm. and choreograph Bruce yeah, Lee. Yeah, yeah. I think... He'd have been young at the time. They'd have argued but, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I would like to see Bruce Lee's style develop into one where he he could take his time with individuals. Yeah. Like he goes up against, in almost every film, there's at least one heavy who takes quite a bit of a beating. Mm. But um, it seems to be much more about one guy just defeating numbers in as quick as possible time. Mm. Uh, you know, with uh, stringing together simple moves rather than making it very elaborate. Yeah. Yeah, well, he always seems to want to get everything done with very quickly, and my view of that could be influenced by 
Dragon the Bruce Lee story where he has the conversation with Linda about how he's always complaining that fights take too long and, mm. and he wants to get them over and done with more quickly. Obviously there he's talking about his actual martial art development rather than uh, presenting that on film. Mm. But there is one uh, <laughs> one recurring trope that I really wish wasn't an element of all of these films is the uh, the black henchman. Yeah. Oh. In almost every single one of these films, the big guy, uh, the the big boss, um, as in the the person at the top who he's ultimately going to have to go go up against, has a henchman who is uh, African American, wears sunglasses, wears very sort of stereotypical seventies. I I can't even think of what the word is. Jive turkey. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> outfits um often there's a strong implication that they're good at basketball well if you get in kareem abdul jabbar <laughs> well, I mean, there's going to the be ex- an implication that he's good at basketball he's the extreme example but it's there with the others but it, it just feels like oh is again you're doing this again it's a double-edged sword because on the other side of things um, p- people of colour, black people in particular, were not cast in many American movies in any kind of sympathetic role either. Mm. Bruce Lee got into trouble for teaching people of colour uh, back in San Francisco. And he was, you know, well, these they have a right to learn as well. So he, this was an attempt at inclusivity. It's just that that attempt at inclusivity did not paint them in a particularly... Uh, graceful light. Absolutely. And and ultimately... Or make much of their characters. From the sounds of things, most of the actors who played those roles were actually on very good terms with mm. uh, with Lee himself. Um, and I'll, again, talk about that briefly. And it would have been like pretty awesome for many in the black community at the time to be like, yeah, we're up there on screen kicking ass, mm. as opposed to not there at all. Yeah, and it's always quite a high-level fight as well because the, the, the style that they bring to the fights is always very, very different from the, the martial arts style. They're much more heavy hitters or they'll have weapons of some description and those fights seem to go on a bit longer mm. and have a bit more prominence in terms of how things go. It's just that the visual language mm. of it was the same every damn time and it just got a little bit frustrating. However, if you're one of... 17 Japanese guys all dressed the same. Good luck with your one second of screen time true. before you are punched immediately <laughs> and disposed of. Very true. These, Honestly, most of these films are a collection of stereotypes and mm. sellotape. Yeah. This film was remade by Yen Wu Ping as Fist of Legend uh, in uh, 1995, I think, Jet Li starring. And uh, a lot of people will have heard of that more than... This, uh, because it, it, it was one of the films that very specifically inspired the Wachowskis mm. uh, with The Matrix in terms of what the fight should look like. Yeah. Uh, it, although it was actually uh, directed by Gordon Chan, but very specifically choreographed by Yang Wuping, and you can tell because of the way the fights are framed mm. and how they play out. This early scene in that film... He goes up against a bunch of... Uh, Jet Li goes up against a, the, the bunch of the same Japanese guys and just goes, leg break, leg break, leg break, leg break, arm break, arm break, arm break. And it's just like the most broken limbs you'll see in a minute. <laughs> it's fucking astonishing. Oh, God. But so painful looking. And uh, they, again, they were very reverent. It's, it's basically the same film and the same story playing itself out. 
and uh, they'd be a good a companion pieces. Not necessarily to watch back to back, but to, if you're going to see one, also see the other. To uh, I mean, Bridget Lee is now in a stage of. Uh, as we speak, not very well and uh, hasn't been in uh, action movies for a while. Mm. So it would be good to see him on fire in Fist of Legend and Bruce Lee on fire in Fist of Fury. Mm. They're both exemplary of their from moments from their back catalogues. So later, Chen takes a stroll in the park and a Sikh guard refuses him entry due to a posted sign that forbids dogs and the Chinese in the park. After the guard allows a foreigner to bring her pet dog into the park, a Japanese man approaches Chen and tells him that if he behaves like a dog, he'll be allowed to go in. Chen, predictably, (laughs) beats the man up and his friends in anger. After the fight, Chen breaks the sign. The guard blows the whistle to alert the police, but the citizens who watch the whole fight help Chen to escape the park. So he's becoming kind of a public enemy. Mm. This film reminded me a little of Civil War, the my one of my absolute all-time favourite films, the Captain America film, insofar as everyone's telling Chen he's doing the wrong thing, mm. but he's the one drawing the line in the sand and saying, no, you move, and he's conflicted about it. He He's being told what's wrong and what's right, and what's right seems to be just ignore it or take it on the chin mm. or accept that this is going to be abuse that continues. Mm. The the underlying implication of and again this is the same thing that's there in in the Big Boss, um, but the the idea that resistance to authority who is behaving immorally Tyrannic. tyrannically is your duty, but you then have to accept the consequences of doing that, which is. As we speak, China's going through all kinds of shit where... Uh, Hong Kong, specifically. Hong Kong, yeah. where their people are standing up to all kinds of tyranny and reaping the whirlwind for that. It's an oddly relevant and uh, a weirdly self-destructive message to put out to people. Don't put up with tyranny, apart from our tyranny. <laughs> Blizzard are going to cancel us. <laughs> okay. The Japanese students and their master retaliate by attacking Jingwu school on Suzuki's orders. After causing severe damage, the Japanese students leave, so they, they kick the crap out of all of his buddies. Mm. Wu, accompanying the Japanese students, warn Jingwu's school to hand over Chen. Chen returns and realizes that he has caused big trouble. His fellow students are reluctant to hand him over to the Japanese, so they make plans to help him escape from Shanghai. So it's, okay, run. And he's like, no, I'm going to go and live in the garden. And he... <laughs> And he like he forces himself into exile and sits outside and makes uh, he eats some raccoon on a stick and uh, at the his um, school uh, his childhood friend I think uh, played by Nora Miao who's in three of these films by yeah. the way she was the uh, I, I think she was a street vendor in uh, Big Boss mm. but not the main lady yeah uh, she's the fiance that he comes back to fetch yeah. at the very beginning of the film so she yeah she's. Yuan Lia and she they have a, a, a very sweet garden scene in the dark where it's they're just kind of very affectionate to each other and um, th- there's a lot of silence between them as it's like you know are you sure you know what you're doing I don't want you to get hurt and it reminded me of Cloud and Tifa in the uh, flashbacks in Final Fantasy 7 even down to what she's wearing and, and him in the, his sort of blue uh, outfit um Again, this is this sort of emphasizes his internal conflict because if he just stops fighting, things will be much easier for him. Mm, yeah, but then it's 
because he's built up to be this frustrated and angry person and the the source of his frustration and anger is what he sees going on around him, the, the unfairness and violence that's being done to people that he cares about, mm. it's sort of the whole thing about it's so much easier to just sit down and let it happen and not fight back. Mm. Sometimes that's not easier at all because it's actually really hard to just sit there and do nothing when you know that you could do something about it. How can one repress the irrepressible? Exactly. That night, Chen discovers that Master Huao had been poisoned by Chan, the cook. Chen then sees Chan and Feng Gushi, the caretaker, talking. Chen kills Chan, followed, followed by Feng, while trying to determine why they killed Master Huo. Chen hangs Chan and Feng's bodies from a lamppost. So it gets grim. Yeah. Chan's fiance uh, Yan Lie finds him hiding near Huao's grave, and they share a passionate moment together. That's the bit in the garden. Meanwhile, Suzuki forces the local police inspector Lo to arrest Chen, but he eludes them. Uh, this is where he's dressed as Sigmund Freud. He's got—he's a master oh of disguise. Oh my god! Yes, this and this again. This has less of a tone problem than the Big Boss, but there are moments when his disguises are just incredible. He disguises himself as as. Um, Sigmund Freud handing out leaflets, and then he disguises himself as like a computer nerd, such as they were in 1972. And he like he puts on um, big glasses, and so like I know all about computers. Mm. Uh, well, he's a, he's supposed to be a phone repairman at that point. But you phone repairman. Do you know what it reminded me? You can of? tell what happens next. There's a there's a scene in The Losers where Chris Evans gets in yeah. somewhere, disguising himself as a delivery guy, mm-hmm. and it just made me think of that. Yeah. It was, it's remarkable uh, levity uh, in this uh, fairly grim film at times. Yeah, and actually saying that reminds me of a sad thought I had, which was that Bruce Lee would be awesome in the Marvel Universe, and he can't be. Yeah. And that made me sad. He's of an age where he could feasibly be like Shang-Chi's master. Yeah. Or someone in his life. Feasibly, yeah. He's of an age. He would have been of an age. Mm. Or a mentor to Daredevil yeah. or something like that. Because he had, a, he was multifaceted as a man and as an actor, and he does throughout this film series kind of explore his range, uh, especially in the next one in regards to comedy. And that would have kept him going as a star and stopped him from just getting typecast over and over again. Because I don't know if you remember Steven Seagal, he just played the same guy over and over again and got fatter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's it's not the same level, and also of, more bigoted. Well, hmm. um, it's not the same level of um, of practice uh, that that is brought by the gentleman I'm about to mention. But he does actually remind me a little bit of Stephen Chow. Yeah, or more specifically, Stephen Chow has uh, modelled himself on Bruce Lee at mm, times. There's, yeah. there's oh, in fact, I don't know if it's this film, but there's that boom, 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 boom. Boom, 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 from the beginning of Kung Fu Hustle. like mm. It's paid homage to. Yeah, but that being able to, to get that balance of uh, comedy and drama, that seems to be the thing that he wanted to bring. The angry Suzuki heads to the Japanese consulate and reports Chan, then sends his men to Jingwu School to kill everyone inside. So he continued to fight, and that the uh, repercussions are that his schoolmates are all going to be killed. That same night, Chen barges into the dojo to take his revenge, killing the students, Master, Yoshida, Petrov, and Suzuki. This is like the boss rush. 
he has to uh, fight a guy with the uh, katana and there's this like really tense like sort of like holding the katana and eventually he kicks it and it leaps into the air spins around and around and around and Bruce sort of grabs this guy by the shoulders and yanks him down and the katana comes tumbling downwards directly through the guy's back mm. protruding out of his stomach kind of kind of <laughs> It's like the, the blade shifts ever so slightly to the right and goes off at an angle. Yeah, it's like, oh, that snapped inside him. That must be incredibly painful. Oh, yeah. Well, these <laughs> Japanese swords are notor- notorious for, for being very brittle. What? <laughs> but apparently the guy playing Petrov uh, was... The Russian. Yeah, the Russian um, is a... Who was like... Like with grabbing, like he does this thing where he's got this board and he's got these great big, like foot long nails, big mm. thick nails, and he sort of like gets them in one hand and goes, and then like grabs them with his other hand and like sticks the nails one after the other through the wooden board, like, uh, 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 uh. and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's like, I, I really wouldn't want to be on the other end of this guy's fist. No, indeed. Well, um, but they were mates. He was a, a student of Lee's. Oh, right, cool. Um, and uh, yeah. Worked yeah. together before then. But yeah, it's, uh, this is another thing that happens in Ip Man a lot. There's like one guy who's definitely not Chinese mm. uh, and is from the West, or as we said, for in, in Russia is technically the north of China. Mm. Um, but uh, an outsider who is also this big bruiser mm. that um, Ip Man, or in this case Chen Zhen, has to fight to, uh, to, to get to the last guy. Mm. He's kind of the uh, Sagat, if you will. Yeah, and there, there does or, seem uh, to no, be... No, technically, he'd be the Balrog. Yeah. Uh, the, the, um, a Balrog of Morgoth. Boxing tends to be a, a common thread of, of here's a, a, a fighting sport that thinks it can run roughshod over martial arts. And it, it sort of it's an interesting way of looking at how... Interesting. It seems that that's used as a symbolic way to show certain filmmakers' perceptions of how the West behaves in the rest of the world. That they are this big hammer-smashing steamroller that comes in thinking that they can take over and, and be better than everybody. And while they will inevitably get taken down, they cause an awful lot of damage on the way. Chen returns to Jingwu School and finds most from Jingwu School and the Hongkao Dojo dead. So it's a tragedy at the yeah, end. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is where it gets very sort of an eye for an eye and everybody will soon be blind. That mm. does, although there is a lot of sympathy for uh, Chen's inability to sit by and let bad things happen without punching back, it does have this tone of without that restraint, without that control, basically everyone's going to die. Mm. And that, that doesn't help. However, a few students remain as they have been searching for Chen at the gravesite, acting on a tip from Yuan. Inspector Lo arrives at Jingwu to arrest Chen, who agrees to surrender himself to Lo to protect his master's legacy. Lo then tells Chen that he can always trust him since he is Chinese. As they exit the school, Chen faces a line of armed Japanese soldiers and officials at the outer gate, all pointing their weapons at him. Though I don't believe there's actually an establishing shot of this, and there really should have been, because if you're going to have this final shot... Like, do we see like, all of these? Yeah. Sni- okay. Yeah. As right. he comes out, it's not a long, lingering shot, but, that's, but you see yeah. that they are outside yeah. with, with guns. Yeah, no, that 
is like to get this to earn this final shot there needs to be like a long like do do doom like just all of the like complete silence and there's all of these guns pointed at him it's hero at the end mm. when he's just walking out and then all of, it's it's like are we going to fire all the arrows at him yeah or butch cassidy and the sundance game. exactly yeah uh, and they're all pointing their weapons at him. Furious, Chen charges the line and makes a flying kick, and there's freeze frame as gunshots sound. He fights to the end, and it's this sort of glorious, pyrrhic, uh, tragic victory of the spirit, if not of uh, being able to save anything, because pretty much everything is destroyed as a yeah. result of this. And it's it's kind of a more extreme version of the end of the big boss, where he allows himself to be taken away by the police. Yeah. And um, in Fist of Legend, the Jet Li one, I will spoil the ending uh, a little bit here just because it's important to delineate the difference between the two. Uh, they take the body of one of the men that uh, Chen killed and just wheel it out and go, look, this was Chen. Yeah. And then Chen himself runs off uh, to hide. And that's actually learning and going, maybe actually going away from this conflict might actually be better for everyone yeah. rather than. Uh, going down in a hail of gunfire. So both endings have merit. Yeah. Although it do, the, the fact that that ending is repeated, though, that does lead me to wonder whether maybe our interpretation of how that story plays out and ends in that he's um, he's doing good by doing all this fighting, but ultimately is is kind of in a melancholy way willing to accept the consequences of it, that maybe the message is actually, you know what, just don't fight in the first place and then none of this will happen. Hmm. But that's a weird message to send in, like, ultimately, if it wasn't a, uh, a fighting school, if it was just a youth club where you're not supposed to fight at all anyway, mm-hmm. and these youth club oppressors come in and start pushing everybody around and threatening people, yeah. uh, ultimately, if you don't in any way retaliate, there is the implication that you will be forever under the foot of uh, tyranny and oppression. Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's such a consistent... And especially when you can't rely on the authorities to meet out justice and go, well, fair's fair, leave these fuckers alone. Yeah. Can't and tell it's, teacher. It's a very consistent theme and one that is very relevant today, that of the over-authoritative... Uh, government or or police force or people who are in charge and are supposed to be protecting and serving and in fact are not, what do you then do as a people? Do you resist that? Do you attempt to fight back? Do you simply allow them to do their job and, and, you know, let's go vote them out? Okay, well, sometimes that doesn't work. It's It's a tough thing to find the right balance for. Um, and especially when it's kind of also interpretable as like a big expanded metaphor of, well, what do you do when you're 14 and you want to rebel against your parents? Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've talked before about the whole, this constant fight back against authority, fight back against authority has these streaks of toxicity in it a mile wide. Just the idea that the thing for a hero to do is to uh, constantly be angry and battle and chafe under the the control that you're under, and that actually that ends up causing an awful lot of circular violence and and people getting hurt where they don't need to be. But I don't know. I feel like this film itself doesn't philosophize too deeply about no. that. 
conflict. Exactly, and that's the it thing. It puts that conflict on Shenzhen. Yes. And Bruce Lee has to enact that, but really it doesn't draw any conclusions. It. Exactly, and I think that's maybe what I'm... Maybe it didn't want to get political. <laughs> maybe that's what I'm missing, is, that, is something that philosophizes about, well, okay, how do you decide when an authority figure, whether that's a person or a... Uh, police department or a, a government how do you draw the line and say right I am not going to just sit here and let that happen anymore and maybe that's different for everybody maybe that's why it's hard to put in a film so of these five this is the one we recommend I think oh absolutely yeah absolutely if you're going to sit and watch any of them this is the one that is the most complete in terms of story it's dated uh, the, performances the least performances are great it's all in uh, Cantonese, which makes it feel more authentic than yeah. Sailor Enter the Dragon. It's, it's visually engaging and interesting. You know, the, as I said, the director's doing all sorts of things with um, with colour and setup and, and shot framing and things, which may not always be completely intentional. Mm. There may have been still a little bit of experimentation about it, but it does really look like he was trying to achieve something and for the most part did so. There's a clear conflict, as in the villains are established, they do villainous things, yeah. and it's like the hero has to then choose whether to fight or not. And obviously he does fight because we're coming to see a goddamn Bruce Lee film, yeah. not a pacifist film wherein this guy actually decides, you know what, I'm not going to fight. Gonna fight. Um, it's the most consistent in tone. Which would be a daring film to put out, by the way. <laughs> it is the most consistent in tone, yeah. And uh, it also feels like one of the most influential of all of them. Even uh, It feels like Enter the Dragon influenced, if anything else, Mortal Kombat. Yes. Well, that's what I mean. I think that the later films that people tend to associate with Bruce Lee and, and the, the little bits from those films that people remember, it's more how they've influenced other things. Video games, Quentin Tarantino, Bond movies, which we will mm -hmm. get to shortly. Um, but then you, you're looking at influences which are two or three times removed that have gone through various different filters. If you, if you really want to look at what was Bruce Lee capable of at the time, this is probably the best example of it. Yeah, so I can understand why this was the one we were charged with talking about, and that's yeah. why we've paid extra attention to this one. Also because it has the most meat on its bones. Mm. Yeah, totally. Okay, so let's move on to Way of the Dragon, not to be confused with Enter the Dragon. So the dragon enters after you know his way. Or after he knows the way? Well, the, the Way of the Dragon is there, and then he enters. All right, but there's a game of death in between. There is. Okay. Uh, uh, sort of. Kind of. <laughs> and it would appear from the wording in this American trailer that they re-released Way of the Dragon post-mortem, his third film, after his fifth film, because Americans were clamoring for more Bruce Lee. What could be more exciting than Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon? Bruce Lee in Return of the Dragon. Yes, Bruce Lee is back, blazing his way from Hong Kong to hell and the all-new fantastic adventures of the superhero he created in Enter the Dragon. It's Lee, unleashed. Lee, unmarshaled. Lee, Unmerciful. No! 
against the dragon, even the best are better off dead. Bruce Lee gives his last and best performance in Return of the Dragon, rated R. Mamma mia! Boy, can we use him now? Okay. So, Way of the Dragon uh, was the Italian film. <laughs> uh, I, I hadn't expected this. This one also was directed by Bruce Lee. This one also was written by Bruce Lee and starring Bruce Lee. It's. Uh, Do you know what? I think he may have overextended himself. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> this is the one with the, those uh, the blurry focus pulls, especially at the beginning when he's at the airport. It's like, mm. what is going on here? And there are some. Uh, like alarming moments of suddenly changing angle where it's like, whoa! Mm. Uh, but you can understand that if uh, Bruce was uh, sort of saying, well, maybe we put the camera here and no one was going to say no to him. Mm. Like he, if he had a very confident DP who could potentially have, uh, you know, guided him in the right direction, then Bruce could pretty much have sat back and let's say Wally Fister or Roger Deakins uh, or the Chinese equivalent uh, do that for him and just go right so yeah that image looks good okay so we'll carry on moving on then effectively like Bruce gets the idea of how where they're going to shoot it the DP does all the like Mm. making it look good the DP on this one did not yeah and this is the um uh, the the first occurrence of another recurring trope, uh, although I suppose you could argue that the seeds were laid down in the Big Boss, of um, martial arts versus the mafia. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> I sh- we should just say for this one going into it, it was intended to be an action comedy. So we will talk about the variations in tone but the comedic elements were on purpose. This is not the mm. room. Uh, we forgot to mention the striptease in Fist of Fury for no reason at all. Oh, About yeah. 70% of the way through, it just cuts to this lady doing like a full-on, like, you know, geisha-style fan dance. And she slowly disrobes, and there's these guys are all sort of clapping. And it's like, rather than just establishing they're watching a striptease, it's like, no, this is a striptease for you, the audience. Enjoy. And then she jiggles her titties and jiggles yeah. her butt. Most of it's from behind, so you just get mm. to see the, the kind of shapely buttocks. And but she's very nice. There but... is there is an element to several of these films, not The Big Boss, but to, to several of them, that I ended up just going, Do you know what, it was the 70s, just let it happen. Mm. Like completely unnecessary sexualized scenes that did not need to be in the story at all. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's almost like an interval. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, it's almost yeah, honestly, it's like a, is everyone paying attention? And everyone sort of sits up. Yep, I'm paying attention now. I'm um, popcorn. Um, but but yeah, it's uh, it, it's. I, I wonder if there's some sort of cultural implication in that because she's dressed very Japanese. Is she a Japanese woman? She's, um, I believe. Oh God, it's or is really, she a Chinese woman really doing Japanese? Because that's a really pointed scene. If that's okay, the case, the thing, she's doing it for the evil dojo. The thing that struck me the most about that particular scene was actually not necessarily anything to do with her. And and yes, there is a little bit of um, they want Japanese entertainment, yeah. and it's it's a bit more of that kind of we're we're in China, but we are still the dominant culture, and we will. Um, force that on the people around us whether that's specifically on the woman who's performing the the dance i don't know it's not made entirely clear but what is made entirely clear is that there are other girls sitting with them at the table 
being obliged to sit and watch this dance when they are clearly not engaged with it and not particularly interested in it. Mm. And again, I mean, all of that might have just been the fact that they had random actresses that were just sat there, didn't know where to look. But the way it comes over, and it is all very visual because there's not a lot of dialogue in that scene, the way it comes over is is that it reinforces that idea of we are putting our cultural stamp on your space, your mm. land, your uh, your occupations and, and how you do things and it makes them feel that little bit more steamrollery mm. so it does enhance the story it, although it's not specifically narratively relevant it does definitely add to the overall uh, take on the story for me mm. so back to way of the dragon mm. There's these fun titles with like loads of little cut out card things it's almost like a uh, 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 Michelle Gondry music video mm. with these uh, sort of dragons yeah, and boats really and things like that. Like that was good. Yeah. Uh, but the, one of the actresses is introduced as Italian beauty, Melissa Longo. And it's like, wow. Do, do they, are they specifically going to say tough Chinese man, Bruce Lee? <laughs> I think if they'd let him, he would have. Well, it's, it's his choices. <laughs> Although that does seem like a studio handed down. We've got to ma- mention this woman. This one seems very much like a come to Italy, mm. just make us look cool, we will fund your film. In part, yeah. And I mean, she, what's her role in the film? She turns up and flirts with him at a fountain. That's about it. Is that it? Yeah. I, f- yeah. I can't remember whether she has much narratively involved after that. So uh, it starts off, like I said, he's waiting at the airport and there's this weird rev- shot, reverse shot, where there's this, this kid's just sitting around eating ice cream, st- standing around eating ice cream. Bruce Lee sidles up to him, looks down, and then we get a kid's eye view of Bruce Lee lurching down towards him and going, oh, and shoving his hand in his mouth, which freaks the kid out and makes him run away. But apparently that was uh, a, a, a sign for, I would like something to eat. It's been established that he's hungry. There's yeah. a bit where a woman is stood next to him looking at him weirdly and his stomach keeps growling. <laughs> This is a Jackie Chan bit, basically. <laughs> it is. It totally is. Whenever Jackie Chan's hungry in a film, you know you're going to see a great scene because Jackie Chan's going to be fighting someone and trying to eat a banana at the same time. <laughs> or dumplings. Or dump. Yeah. It, uh, like honestly, kung fu with food is brilliant. Mm. I love that. When, so obviously, Kung Fu Panda with that bit with the bun, it's, which is, is based on yeah. Jackie Chan doing that in multiple films, yeah. which is clearly owes a little bit of a debt to this. And if Bruce had thought that. Like, maybe I have a fight at an airport and I'm really hungry and I want to get some food in my mouth. That might have been an all-time classic scene from any of these five movies or from that era. Mm. He doesn't. Instead, it's more like a sort of a comedy skit. He goes to a restaurant and they had to close the restaurant. (laughs) He goes to a restaurant. This woman's like, yes, what do you want? And he sort of points at various things on the menu. Mm. And then she goes, all right, walks away to off off camera and comes back with five ready-made, completely different soups, plonks them down in front of him. And he kind of, like, he doesn't quite spike the camera in a kind of a, is that what I asked for way? But it's close enough. And he's like, okay, then. And then he puts on his napkin and he just starts, like, lightning eating all of these five soups with a, with a spoon. It's like, um, chicken, tomato, um, minestrone. And it's like, oh, it's kind of disgusting. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm like, oh, what are we watching? Because we'd just seen Fist of Fury the night mm. before. Yeah. And so now we're watching this Italian farce. And it's like, it's like this at this and time. And it is an Italian farce, essentially. This is Bruce Lee going, I want people to see my funny side. Mm. And he, he definitely has he it. He does, yeah. And if it had been directed as a comedy and at some point Which, she has to fight. Strictly speaking, it was. But I think it needed to be directed as a comedy by someone else. Yeah. But I mean, like comedies in those days were not funny mm. to us now, yeah. by by and large. You know, like Monty Python and the Holy Grail was the exception, yeah, not the rule. I suppose so. Or maybe even if like it's, if you uh, Billy have, Wilder, maybe. But uh, if you want to have a go at directing, maybe put another actor in the main role and you direct it, Bruce. Mm. Because you know the ideas are clearly coming from him, and they are funny ideas mm. it's the execution and it almost feels like it's because he's trying to do too much at once yeah yeah but as well as this Italian beauty that we mentioned before there's also an extremely camp fellow who's kind of predatory and oh, it's like this is another one of those stereotypes he's he's like the uh, a mincing queen version of, uh, of of one of the worst gay stereotypes he's like at one point Bruce Lee walks out and his belt's hanging out a bit and the guy kind of deliberately bumps into him and goes oh you should look where you're going and then kind of tucks the belt back into his pants and then sort of like winks at him and walks away and Bruce is kind of like nonplussed what, what just happened here and it's like you wrote that joke Bruce <laughs> Get flirted with and slightly felt up by a gay man. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Uh, well, it was funny in the day, maybe. No. Yeah. And again, this is another one of those, this, this is another one of those uh, with, uh, with black guys in it. And all of them, all of these gang members are all like stereotypical. Uh, um, like, you know, th- these, these men are from Harlem, so they're all going to be exactly like this. Mm. Uh, and there's again no fighting until about 50 minutes in. Okay, th- that's two out of three of these films where we've just sort of sat there for a while and gone, are we watching a Bruce Lee kung fu film or are we watching well, something else? This is something that I was kind of trying to work out because I like I completely get that it's possible what he was trying to do was be an actor. And I shall be an actor. In and and what I mean by that is not be compelled to do martial arts all the time just because he's Asian. And I I completely understand that. That makes total sense. But, again, it's, it's the tone problem thing. Because if that's what you're trying to do, do that. But there's so much kind of chopping backwards and forwards that it almost feels like there's, there's, it's kind of, I don't want to be just known for my fighting. No one's paying attention to me. 50 minutes into the film, mm. oh, okay, then I'll do some fighting. Honestly, if, it, if, it, if he was going to do this and make a comedy film, but also with some martial arts, mm. Mel Brooks. He yeah. needed to get in contact with Mel Brooks and then make the Asian equivalent of Blazing Saddles. Oh, do you know what? If Mel Brooks had directed this, it would have been a lot better. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> But I don't even like to... Blazing Saddles all that much, but that is considered a classic by many. But... And it deals with the rather tricky subject of race. Mm. But, I mean, ultimately, it, he is still trying really, <clears throat> really, really hard at this point to break into uh, films that can be sold in the West. Yeah. And, you know, uh, it's, he tries multiple things to make this one... Hollywood saleable. Mm. The fact that Chuck Norris is in it, 
Um, the you know there's the, the oh, fact that Chuck Norris when he Rome. turns up at the airport walks into the camera dick first oh he gets off the plane and the camera's roundabout crotch level he just sort of walks forwards da, 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 da. I'm Chuck Norris do you know it took me so long to work out that this was actually Chuck Norris because I know Chuck Norris by the beard and the feathered yeah. hair of the 80s yep. so he was, has no beard his hair is flat indeed he looks he has like... purple prickles all over his back <laughs> he does he really <laughs> He has such a hairy back. Oh my god! But Continue, I, sorry. I you were no saying a whole idea. thing about Bruce trying to make it into like Hollywood saleable, and then you mentioned Chuck Norris, and yes. I had to mention the dick first. That's shot. fine. But no, it, it. I had no idea that this was Chuck Norris. It took me a while to work it out, and um, and then it was like, oh, hang on, he's wearing a sports coat and jeans. Yeah, that's definitely Chuck Norris. Mm. Um, but uh, but yeah, so there's there's all these elements to it. The you know the Italian. Actress and the fact that it, it's, it's filmed in Rome, and you know, there's and they have to do that... shots of Roman architecture and go, Look at this, this is history, yeah. and look at these lovely gardens. Mm, it's okay. it's for the Rome Tourist Board, yeah, it does come across that way a little bit, but it does feel like he's putting all this stuff in in an attempt to make it more, uh, more accessible to Western audiences to try and engage with mm. it. And it is again, it's it's kind of sad that it didn't work, yeah. It reminds me of uh, Rick being asked to go and do Italian films in uh, Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood. Mm. Because, again, the, these films sort of found their own niche and are remembered by, by a select few yeah. as a result now. Mm. Uh, then, So when he does finally fight a bunch of gang members, uh, it's because like, it's he's... Uh, get, gotten involved with the Chinese mafia. Who are... Yeah, the the when he arrives in Rome, he's basically uh, gone. Don't say basically. Sorry, when he arrives in Rome, he goes to live with a lady who's running a restaurant. She and her uncle had been running a restaurant, and he'd got killed by these gangsters because they're trying to shake down the business and and take it over. And uh, she's got all these guys who she's hired to work in the restaurant, but also fight the mafioso whenever they turn up. Right. And so it's a protection racket. It's yeah, basically. Yes, and uh, I can't think of the name of Bruce Lee's character in this one. Tang Lung. Tang Lung, and Tang Lung, who Bruce is the name of Bruce Lee's character. He's trying to help her and defend her business and so that's what the fight eventually springs out of. Is this Chen Ching Hua that he's trying to help? Uh, yes. That's Nora Ma- Meow again. Yeah, the woman who plays his fiance yeah. in Fist of Fury. The Tifa lady in uh, Fist of Fury and the uh, street salesman in uh, and, and the street vendor in Big Boss. Mm. So yeah, he gets into a, a, a fight with some dudes, breaks out the nunchucks and then he's like double chucking it and they're, they're all just sort of like so, like standing in front of him in an alley, and like one after the other, this boss of the uh, hoods like nudges forwards his lackeys with a broom handle, like you go attack him. <laughs> they will move forwards very cautiously and get bopped on the head with these nunchucks. And eventually, there's only this guy with the broom handle left who manages to get some nunchucks himself, and then like swings them around, bops himself on the head, and then Bruce Lee finishes him off with a second bop. And it's like okay. Yep. Yeah. And this is this is Don't mess with point. nunchucks kids you'll hurt yourself. No idea and this is why they wouldn't let them be on uh, TV and So this is a film with triple chucks. Yes, indeed. Um And this is where the the kind of tone issue slider 
crosses the midline for this one because unlike in the big boss where the tone is constantly shifting backwards and forwards Mm. this is more like it starts as a bumbling idiot comedy about this guy who's got off the plane in yeah he's Rome Norman Wisdom and yeah has no idea what's going on and orders the wrong food and scares children and is basically just has no idea what he's doing mm. and then it, it kind of the slider is then pushed gradually towards the dramatic until it crosses the centre line and he suddenly becomes this hyper competent fighter yeah we never see this uh, funny guy ever again not after this point no it, it, it reminded me of if, uh, if Chris Pratt went off and did like dramatic role uh, the way he does in Zero Dark Thirty rather than trying to cash in on his Star Lord uh, Owen Owen Grady uh, Jurassic Park and uh, Emmett from uh, Lego Movie mm-hmm. the, the, the the fun persona if he was just trying to be serious and then halfway through the film lapsed back into Star Lord again and it's well, like well that would be going in the opposite direction but yeah imagine if you cut the first half of Guardians of the Galaxy with the latter half of Zero Dark Thirty oh. <laughs> whoa <laughs> Okay, maybe not quite that extreme, but, but that's what my I My point was, it was about Bruce Lee trying to challenge himself and yeah. then slipping back into not challenging himself because mm. he then does what he's really good at. Yeah. Which is, is fine. Because um, I think it feels like people would be like, we came to see a goddamn fight movie. Mm. But at the same time, as we've already established, you can have a, a fight movie that's fun. Mm. Yeah. And like with the right mindset going into this and the right mode of uh, of operating both the comedy and the action he could have made something that I mean at the time Jackie Chan was about to do Drunken Master mm. which is a kung fu comedy yeah 1978 yeah so yeah 6 years afterwards but it feels very contemporary mm. And by the way, we would totally recommend a young Jackie Chan in Drunken Master. It's uh, directed by Yan Wuping, and uh, it's got some amazing moments in it. Even better than that, Return of the Drunken Master, which is a 1994 film, was just before Jackie Chan like really broke through in the West. It has got some astonishing choreographed fight scenes, mm. and again, it's it's Jackie Chan in comedy mode, and uh, I. <laughs> I feel like Lee and Chan kind of crossed like ships in the night. They were almost there and almost together, but just didn't quite. And like, a, frankly, a buddy duo mm. would have I, been so good I had Lee lived. I don't know if he'd have done it, though. And one of the things that has really kind of... I don't know if this is true, but one of the, thing, one of the feelings I get from having now watched more of his work than I've ever seen before, mm-hmm. and... I, with all of that aforementioned uh, representation of him in popular culture and um, the and what we've taken from Dragon the Bruce Lee story, one of the overwhelming feelings I get about him, I don't know if this is accurate, but is the sense that he wanted to do everything himself and that was possibly his his worst enemy was this determination that he was going to do it all and with as little help as possible. Yeah. That's true. They, these are all solo films. There's actually a guy in uh, Enter the Dragon who could very well have teamed up with him, mm. and they dispose of him two-thirds of the way through the film. Yeah. So, yeah, now we're in the serious fighting bit. Uh, Chuck Norris has been brought in to get rid of him. He fights some other guys. He, he does some nut-pulverizing, like, oh. just purees this guy's testicles. The, the, there is so much testicle trauma in these films. It's, it's not it could have been called testicle trauma. It's not necessarily Way of the testicle frequent trauma. in each film, but in almost 
in every single one of these films, there is at least one shot where he either grabs somebody's nuts and throws them by, by the, the nuts. Or punches them in the nuts, or kicks them in the nuts, or something. There, it's just this. It's painful to watch. Yes, and he finally ends up fighting Chuck Norris in this old abandoned cat factory. Um, <laughs> they're being watched. Oh my god! Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. They're being watched by kittens all over. The, it's such an odd choice, but it kind it's of makes the fight weird. It does, and it kind. There's of this one kitten. They keep cutting back and forth, and the kitten's watching tennis, going left, right, left. <laughs> He's watching from atop a wall. Absolutely. and it, But it just feels like you could understand them having the cats running around in the background like we wanted to film in this warehouse and we couldn't get the cats yeah, to leave. It's, it's, John Woo started with cats and then realised doves were easier to hurt. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but the fact that they keep cutting to the cats to get the cats reaction shots to what's going on. They've incorporated them into the narrative. Again, Bruce Lee is a cat. You might be right. I think, honestly, like, had we seen him for a few more years, he would have ended up with a tail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, and I think this film actually ranks a little higher than it could have done because of this fight with Chuck Norris, who I've never liked in particular. Mm. But the actual fight, it's wordless. They don't, like, this is a conversation, yeah. and they're sizing each other up, and they, they kind of box and fence with each other, mm-hmm. and eventually, the thing that really is the crux, Chuck gets hard injured, like, he gets his leg crunched, and he gets his arm broken, I think, mm-hmm. so he ends up on the ground, unable to really get back up again, and, and Bruce is just sort of looking at him and pacing back and forth... And it's like he could go in for the kill at this point, just blah like that. But there is a respect where he's like, no, 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 you get up. If you want to carry on fighting, do. But I suggest you surrender. There is that radiating from him. Mm. And there's a long while. And then eventually it's like Chuck gets that look on his face where he's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Mm. And he very slowly, very painfully gets to one foot, having to dangle the other one off the ground because it's just ruined. And he's, like, favouring one arm and just sort of, like, holds himself out sideways. And it's like, never retreat, never surrender. I'm just going to keep doing this. And Bruce just goes in for the kill and goes... And then, like, spins him around, chokes him out, crunches him. And I don't know whether he strangles or breaks his neck, but he fucking kills Chuck Norris. But then he sort of wanders off... And just sort of stands there, kind of breathing, thinking about what he's done. Then bends down, picks up Chuck Norris's gi, the, the, the top part of his karate outfit, and his belt. And then slowly goes back to the body and lays the gi down over the man's face and puts the belt very respectfully beside him. And then stands up, kind of breathing hard, like, I've just killed a man. I've just killed a man. I've just killed a man. This is really significant. Mm. And that never happens in martial arts movies. It sometimes happens with people who know each other very well. And it's like, you know, I finally killed you. And that's usually at the end of the film. And in this case, it is at the end of the film. But it's very rarely between two people who've only just met. Mm. It would be like if Wesley killed Inigo Montoya Mm. and then was like, please understand, I held you in the highest regard, but then can't move because he's having a bit of a nervous breakdown. Mm. And it's, that's one of the best bits of acting I ever saw Bruce Lee do. So it's worth watching Way of the Dragon just for that bit. Mm-hmm. Or if you can find that fight and watch the whole thing and they don't just cut it to the next bit on YouTube, then, yeah, you, you'll, you'll have some good acting here. Yeah. So basically what we have here with Way of the Dragon is two halves 
of reasonable films, but stuck together wrong. Yeah. And a couple of bits that should be in much better films. Yes, and a couple of bits that probably shouldn't be mm. there at all. This was Chuck Norris's big screen debut. He had, he was basically a fighting tournament champion up to oh, this okay. point. That's how Lee came across him. He wasn't just like, who are you? You look like you'd be a good extra. Oh, you're, you're pretty good at fighting. I'll make you the big bad henchman. What's your name, Chuck Norris? No, he is advertised as like this American champion. Okay. Right? So it's a, it's a point of pride when he turns up in the film. Yeah. It's stunt casting, but it's the kind of stunt casting that's like, actually, we want to see this happen. Mm. The way that um, Dave Batista turns up in Master Z and yeah. um, Tony Jaa. By the way, I'm going to say again, Master Z, one of my favourite films of 2019. Okay. I, prior to this, only really knew Chuck Norris from... Um, jokes? Being, <laughs> from jokes and from being Jonathan Brandis's imaginary friend. In, in Sidekicks. Sidekicks. Doesn't he get taught... Was he taught by Chuck, Chuck, imaginary Chuck Norris? Possibly. As I recall, it's uh, he never actually really meets Chuck Norris. He just likes Chuck Norris films. Yeah. yeah. This reminds me of a 1986 film called No Retreat, No Surrender, where I think it's Jean-Claude Van Damme gets taught... Oh, no, no, Van Damme's the uh, uh, villain at the end. This kid gets taught martial arts by the ghosts of Bruce Lee in his garage. We Hate Movies did a show on it. Way, way back in the day. So dedicated, he carried on working after he was dead. Teaching kids to Kung Fu. Mm. And we're just going to say one final uh, well done to Chuck Norris's back hair, because it is impressive. It's like these furry wings, and he's all glazed with sweat. There's a moment in the fight where (laughs) Bruce grabs him by the chest hair. And yanks some of it out. And yanks out a big handful of it. Now, I'm quite a hairy guy myself, so I sympathise, Chuck. You are nowhere near. As hairy as Chuck Norris. It is possible Norris is part Wookiee. It is that hairy. But, uh, yeah, so... And that's fine. There is nothing wrong with being hairy. <laughs> Clearly Sharon is not opposed to hairiness. But it's the it's the ripping off of it. Ow! That's just... Ew. Yep, we don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, which brings us to Game of Death. The all-time low of Bruce Lee's career. The all-time low of cinema, I would say. He is an international superstar. They call him a living legend. But the woman he loves belongs to the mob. And now, they're out to own him. Don't be a slow learner, Billy. Billy! If they can't buy him, they'll have to kill him. Billy! You don't have too many choices. A final warning. And so begins the game of death. Columbia Pictures presents the immortal Bruce Lee in his greatest motion picture adventure, Game of Death. Starring Gig Young, Dean Jagger, Colleen Camp, Hugh O'Brien, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar as Hakeem. It begins as a matter of principle. It becomes a matter of survival. Before and after. As the undisputed master of the martial arts becomes a master of disguise and the champion of the game of death. This is the final film of Bruce Lee. Four and a half years in production with an international all-star cast. You lose, Carl Miller. 
Bruce Lee single-handedly takes on an underworld army and fights for his life in the game of death. The final film of Bruce Lee. Game of Death. This fucking thing is which, atrocious. Which Game of Death are we going to talk about first, Alex? Because there are multiple Game of Deaths. Right. Game of Death as a concept was a film that Bruce Lee was working on in 1973 with Golden Harvest to make another film, a follow-up to Way of the Dragon. I don't know if he was necessarily going to be playing the same character, because uh, at the end of Way of the Dragon, he wanders off like at the uh, cane in Kung Fu to uh, have other adventures, and it feels like they could have carried on with um, Tan Lung's character. Yeah, I don't know if it is the same character. It, uh, it do- it's, well, it, it's a very... Hei Chan was his character. Right, okay. So it wasn't Tang Lung. Um, yeah, so he's a retired martial artist who is confronted by Korean underworld gangs and ends up fighting them. They tell him of a story of a pagoda where guns are prohibited <laughs> and under heavy guard by highly skilled martial artists who are protecting something which is not identified in any t- uh, surviving material held at its top level. Because here's the thing, like uh, Bruce Lee, uh, they came up with this idea for a film where the big thing, the big showdown was in a pagoda where it's like you climb level after level and you beat boss after boss. And that's a great idea for a film. And Bruce filmed a lot of that pagoda stuff. They had 100 hours of footage. Jesus. 100 hours? Mm. I thought it said 100 minutes. Oh, 100 minutes. Yeah. Apologies. It feels like 100 hours they could have made a film out of that. Yeah. Okay, so he filmed these scenes. And then he went off to do Enter the Dragon. So technically we should be doing this last because this film was released after Enter the Dragon all the way five years after his death in 1978. Mm. However. However, we're going to look at this now because we can't end on this. No. And, and the game of death that came out in 1978 is not the game of death that Bruce Lee filmed in 1973. No. <sighs> after, like before Enter the Dragon even hit cinemas, before he'd get back and start doing this pagoda film and, and carry on doing the other, what basically 90% of the film. Mm. Not even that. Like, he, there was actually, there is a, on the Blu-ray, an assembled 40-minute cut of all of the action sequences they could get from that pagoda scene, like, visualised roughly as it was supposed to be. And uh, he actually climbs the pagoda with a couple of mates, and they're always slightly off camera in the uh, the, the final film version. But uh, yeah, it's there. It's forty minutes of him fighting various bosses, so we can say between ninety percent and sixty percent of the film had not been filmed. Mm. How about that? If this last bit was just going to be a length, like Act Three was all this pagoda, and Bruce Lee died. And the people at Golden Harvest were like, well, what the fuck are we going to do with this 40 minutes worth of Bruce Lee um, fighting in a pagoda? Or not even that, 11 minutes worth they actually had that was usable because they lost a lot of it. Mm. 
And what they decided to do in the end, many years after his death, was to put together a completely brand new film with bits and bobs and odds and ends of Bruce Lee and just like bits from his previous films that they had uh, released and uh, B-roll and odd footage and stuff, which was actually very famous and we'd already seen. But rather than sort of trying to reconstruct the original plot as it had been intended, Mm. they basically throw everything out, start from scratch, take some bits and pieces from... Uh, Way of the Dragon and open with that framing it as if the character that Bruce Lee was intended to play in this film is an actor who has just finished rapping Way of the Dragon. Because they, sh- they they cut to the film crew of Way of the Dragon filming the Chuck and yeah. Bruce fight, who were not actors playing a film crew, but an actual film crew. Mm. For, for some of it. For some of it, there is actually as far a, as I can a, tell. a re-set-up just from the way people are delivering their lines, it's obvious these are not real yeah. people doing this job and talking naturally. But at this stage, Bruce Lee is dead. And they can't actually have him act out this script that they've written, such mm. as it is. What was the name of his body double? Uh, he had two. What were the names of his body doubles? Uh... Who was Billy Lowe? There's the English uh, There you go. Together. You've got... Um, Albert Sham. Kim Tai Jong. Oh, how perfect. Albert Sham. Hmm. Uh, Kim Tai Jong, when Bao in some of the fight scenes, and then Albert Sham, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what you've got is a bunch of body doubles and stand-ins. So you'll get a brief shot of actual Bruce Lee, and then a guy will walk across the uh, movie lot and go into his trailer, and it's not Bruce Lee. The... I think the worst moments of this film actually come at the very beginning because it's this guy who's not Bruce Lee looking in the mirror and you're like, if he's not Bruce Lee, don't show his face. We know that's not Bruce Lee. Mm. And then a guy comes in and like starts, uh, he's the mafia guy who's got like this knife cane who sort of pokes it out at him and is like, you know, you don't want to mess with us, Sonny Jim. And they have some shots of Bruce Lee's eyes like close up, like from another film and another scenario entirely. It's like, okay, so Bruce Lee is looking at him and they're they're sort of fudging it. Um, And then I don't know whether they just like attempted this and went, yeah, that'll do or attempted it and thought that won't do, but let's leave it in anyway. They literally paste a a cardboard cutout of Bruce Lee's face from a previous film, a bit from a negative of Bruce Lee or a poster of Bruce Lee over the face of this body double like a, a jib-jab that is static and not moving. Yeah. It looks like he's wearing a cardboard Bruce Lee mask. And it's like, there's ways you can make us this feel like this is Bruce Lee. This is not one of them. How is this in the final film? Yeah. Un-fucking-believable. Yeah. And, and, and it gets so much worse. What, what makes it worse for me? What makes it worse for me is the fact that they... Um, about maybe two-thirds of the way through the film. Um, the upshot is that this actor, Billy Lowe, mm. who has just finished filming Way of the Dragon, yeah. is uh, shaken down by gangsters and they threaten his wife or his girlfriend and in order to get away from them, he fakes his own death. I will let you talk about what happens with that. But afterwards, he goes and has plastic surgery. 
And it's clear that the idea here is the actor we had to use for the first half of this film mm. was not Bruce Lee. Mm. But we have footage of Bruce Lee that we're going to use at the end of the film. Yeah. So we're going to have the implication that he has this plastic surgery halfway through the movie to make himself look like Bruce Lee. Yeah. So that in the second half of the movie... When he takes off the bandages, it's actually the footage of Bruce Lee. Exactly. That's a solid way of doing it. Like- it is. It is. But if that's what you're going to do... Do that! That's not what they did. They put a cardboard Bruce Lee over the guy at the beginning who is not actually meant to look like Bruce Lee. They're at cross purposes with themselves. They really are. There's just, there's so little consistency in how they approached it and it's all over the place. And then the fact that they, even with this plastic surgery debacle of a subplot... They still don't have enough footage of Bruce Lee for the end part of the film to be entirely him. Mm. So they are still using a body double. They are still cutting backwards and forwards between shots where it was intended, I'm guessing, to be entirely filmed from behind so that you couldn't see the face. But you can see the face. And just, it's, he's three different people and a photograph of himself in this movie. And there's no consistency as to when he is which version of himself and it's a mess it's horrible it's like a terry gilliam film but without any of the the art and the crafting and the terry gilliam very deliberately going right now he's because that was heath ledger in the imaginarium of dr parnassus they had to work around the fact that they had some heath ledger and they had had to get a lot of johnny depp and colin farrell to fill in for this they had to reshape the whole movie i'd forgotten that and i was saying i was like why terry gilliam oh yes yeah that's another example of that happening but Honestly, this makes Fast and Furious 7 look like a work of fucking art that they managed to do that. It's obviously, this is what Sharon referred to as like them effectively puppeteering a dead actor to make their film. But it's so sloppily handled. They're not even really doing that. And I think the worst thing is they had five years to come up with a film to put... To something to put before this 10 minutes. Or to decide not to do it because it was a mess and a disrespectful mess. Money on the table, I'm guessing. They're like, look, we've got this footage, this 10 minutes, the last bit. It's actually Bruce doing some really great fighting stuff. Uh, To me, I would be like, I will sell you this footage to an American studio willing to make a film that that includes a bit of Bruce Lee in there. Well, this like, is... But here's the, I was coming up with the story on the spot. Like, rather than it being Bruce Lee, this is about his brother. Mm. And, like, you follow a really good martial artist through the story. And then um, it sort of cuts to this last bit of Bruce Lee. And, like, he, uh, either um, uh, you explain that uh, he can, like, let his brother out of a, a something. And then, like, the, the film should be about working your way their way up to getting to Bruce Lee. And... The film itself is utterly incoherent. Mm. It's one of the worst sound designs I've ever heard. Everyone's mumbling all the time. It's impossible to hear what's being said. A lot of this was because they wanted to keep Bruce Lee's voice for some of the stuff. So they kind of dubbed Bruce Lee's voice, but the sound quality is absolutely abysmal. And... Everyone, there's no excuse for everyone else sounding that abysmal. And the film quality is constantly changing because some of it's from 1973 and some of it's from 1978. It's utterly and incoherent. You don't know who's who, where anyone needs to be going or what the general plot is. No, and I think the thing that I find the most frustrating about all of this is that apparently when it was made and finally released, 
it actually reviewed quite well. Now, whether this was because people were being kind, because Bruce Lee was dead, mm. I don't know. But a lot of the the positive observations of it were things like, well, there's more Western characters than you'd normally get in a Bruce film, uh, Bruce Lee film, so it relates better to Western audiences. It had to have more Western characters in it. The guy was dead. The footage they had was insufficient. They had to film with actors that they could get hold of easily. Um, Their golden harvest, f- film with an all Chinese crew and make a good film. The narrative apparently Which you was, include Bruce Lee fighting in, but keep that for the end because that's what everyone wants to see. Indeed. Apparently the narrative was more palatable and coherent to a, a Western It audience. was absolute gibberish. Who made that decision? This narrative is a mess. I yeah. just don't get how they could assemble this pile of shit... And have people look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's totally better than Fist of Fury. <laughs> well, Fist of Fury didn't have enough white people in it. How I mean, how stupidly racist were... were... I, I can only pray that that was not the only reason. That people were just being overly kind about it because they didn't want to shit on the man's memory. Maybe. Um but, like, this film shits on the man's memory. This film shits on the man. There's two sequences really close to each other which turned my blood to ice. One, they don't even... They have no idea of the faux pas they committed here because it hadn't really been mirrored in real life yet. They set up Billy Lowe again as this actor. The mafia want him dead. They set up the end shot from Fist of Fury... It's Bruce Lee leaping into the camera and they've got this long lingering shot of a mafioso guy who's acting in the film holding up one revolver, which it's like you don't, there were no, like you don't need to shoot anyone mm. for this. Yeah. There, there's either the firing squad or there isn't. But yeah, it's this mafioso guy. Oh, it's, it's not even Fist of Fury. It's just a similar scenario. He's leaping in. This mafiosi guy holds up a revolver very slowly. I'm like, oh, no, they're not going to actually do this. He fires off a shot and this Bruce Lee double falls to the ground, bleeding out of his face with his just face, a, a, a horrendous mess. And it's a, oh, we accidentally fired off a real bullet or uh, an actual accident uh, occurred on set with a gun. And this person equated with Bruce Lee is now dead. That literally happened to Brandon Lee in the filming of The Crow. It wasn't a bullet. It was a, a piece of debris that was lodged in the uh, uh, gun after, and a blank effectively propelled that outwards, killing him. It was one of the greatest tragedies to occur on a uh, film set of all time. And they weirdly preempt that. Yeah, I, I mean, we can't... We can't hold that against really them, against but it does make watching They had no idea that was going to happen in 15 years' time, but it is horrible. Yeah gut-churning to watch. And uh, after that, there's something they could definitely have helped, which is footage of Bruce Lee's funeral, open casket, uh, a crowd all screaming and trying to get hold of the uh, uh, coffin, like actual footage. And they're, they're the top gets uh, uh, pulled off to reveal the corpse of Bruce Lee and his, his uh, embalmed face. And uh, this... Is desecration. This is grave robbing. This is the worst possible insult. How dare you? This is amoral filmmaking. How dare they with this? I, I was gonna throw up. That that takes the fucking cake. 
And then everything else is just gibberish. It's just bullshit. And then we get to that fight at the end. And Bruce Lee in the do- dojo bit, um, Pagoda, does actually uh, pull off some great moves. There's this one guy in a, a, a bunch of mafioso shits in jumpsuits with lemon piping are following him on motorbikes a lot. There's this one particular guy in a, a, a yellow one uh, with a, a helmet on who uh, keeps haranguing this Billy Lowe and eventually gets kicked off the motorbike and then Billy takes his jumpsuit. So that's why it explains how he's in the yellow jumpsuit for this finale. Mm, which is the bit that everybody remembers mm. and probably the main reason they remember it is because that's the outfit that uh, the laws wear in Tekken uh, it's a point. secret outfit for forest law in oh, Tekken okay. 3 once you've completed the game with him I think right okay I, I knew I'd seen mm. one of them in it so okay yeah. that would explain but also it. but also the bride in Kill Bill Kill Bill yeah, yeah. the other element of this which um, was kind of engaging was uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar yeah is uh, again he's it, one of the bosses in the pagoda, and this is he actually did fight Bruce Lee, yeah, so this is he real. Was, he was drafted in uh, and and um, was originally part of the original 1973 mm. Game of Death film. Mm-hmm. He is initially introduced in the same <sighs> sunglasses wearing jive manner that uh, this role has so often been presented throughout Bruce Lee's film career. Um, so I kind of huh, sighed a bit again when it happened. Um, but actually, the the fight between the two of them... Now, I can't remember. Is this actually in the final film or was this an extra bit? Was this just something that we watched separately? No, it's in the film. It is in the film. Right, okay. So the fight between him and... It just and, goes on um, longer in this 40-minute assembled footage version. Okay, right. That's fair enough then. The fight between him and Ab- Ab- uh, Abdul-Jabbar, I really, Who, by the really way, was like. the, he was the pilot in... Are you the pilot? In Airplane. Airplane, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I, it's, it's really visually interesting because he's so tall and... He's like a Navi! Lee is like... Tiny in comparison, and the the style of fighting between them has to constantly change because he's got this amazing reach with his legs, and every time uh, Lee kind of leaps in, he's kicking him backwards, and it, it's really oh, hang on, he's Roger Murdoch in uh, Airplane when they're doing the Roger what, um, who's on first type bit going oh, back okay. and forth, yeah, fair enough. Um, How do they he get his legs under that seat? Like they must have had a, a like a hollowed out chasm under there. But apparently he was asked to cut like some of the actors from the original 1973 footage were asked to come back and do reshoots when they started putting it together in 78 mm. because they they needed some connective tissue between the new stuff that they were making mm. and what they already had. Uh, and apparently Abdul Jabbar refused. Yeah. He was um he was good friends with Bruce Lee apparently and I don't know what his reasons were, but he wouldn't come back to do the reshoot. So they had to kind of frame his role around what they already had. Yeah. Which is fine. He's one of the uh, bosses. Uh, Bruce fights him. There's a uh, really great protracted sequence where Kareem is trying to shove Bruce's face down on a piece of broken china. And he's like Mm. shoving hard. And Bruce basically kind of like does a handstand and like slowly works his legs up to be able to get out of it. Um and there's some great physicality in that fight. And he ends up just like rolling around on the ground, choking out uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar again. They just sort of look, you know, defeating him and he, he flops. And it's a it's a fighting to the bone type thing. It's a, Neither of them were a pushover in that yeah. one. And I, I do understand that, you know, they had some really great footage in the, the 
small amount that they had. Okay, say it in a different tone of voice. We both understand they had some really great footage. Do not say it in that kind of, I sympathize, we can't sympathize with this. No, 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 I'm not going to. I am to. ordering you not to sympathize with this. I'm not going this. to. What These I am, fucking grave robbers. What I hate I am this film. going to follow that with is, but there's ways. <laughs> anyway. And this is not one of them. So, uh, also notable is the John Barry intro, which makes it sound and and music that plays yeah, throughout it makes it sound like, like a Bond film. A Bond film. Yeah. They have this um, this animated intro sequence that's got card games going on and all sorts of casino stuff and uh, dominoes and it, it's it's like you're setting this up to be really symbolic and and this could be really cool and it's not. It's not cool, um, and. I put it down that it fulfills the merest criteria for being a film. It does the 1% job required to be considered a film. I hate saying things are not films. I hate the idea of this isn't real. I don't like proclaiming that. But this film, you would be hard-pressed to watch and go, this is a thing that would be in a cinema. It's a collage. Collage sounds like artistic intent. It's a bin full of stuff. (laughs) Seriously. Okay. It's that haphazardly arranged. Mm. And I was thinking of all of these other films where they've had been up against it, and usually it's that they've got a lot more of the actor. So uh, the, the way that Proximo goes out in uh, uh, Gladiator is, is masterful in comparison. Mm. Oliver Reed died before the end of that. They didn't have all the footage, but Proximo ends up still a fantastic character, and, and they, they worked around it. Um, as you said, Fast and Furious Seven. There was there's some obvious, definite shots, and where it's not Paul Walker, it's his brother, and uh, they do some digital pasting, but they work around what they have. Again, they had enough footage, and they shot some more dramatic scenes to change the nature of the film. And again, that's at the tippity top of what you can do with that because they, it was an it was a emotional farewell of yeah. the series, and, and that's where the series should have ended as and well. And specifically, it's all done in a very respectful way. Yeah. And this, ladies and gentlemen, was not. This makes The Crow look like The Dark Knight. And we did a, a quick review on The Crow, and we were very, very scathing. I, there's some people who just adore that film, but I think I would, there are various reasons why we were not at all happy mm-hmm. or comfortable with it. I don't even know whether you're supposed to be happy or comfortable. We were not thrilled with it either. Nothing that was good apart from just sad that Brandon Lee had died and um, impressed with his acting abilities and his on-screen presence. And then the end sequence for Game of Death is just lots of shots from Fist of Fury. It's like, remember how good Fist of Fury was? Yeah, yeah, I remember. And the last lingering (laughs) shot is Bruce Lee sort of looking in a kind of a way. And you muttered, yeah, you and me both, Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) Shouldn't have done that one. Oh dear! But he, he had no I didn't. <laughs> you cannot. This is the one that you cannot, in any sense, hold Bruce Lee responsible for. This, by the way, all. is proof that zombies don't exist. Because if they did, Bruce would rise <laughs> would from have the come grave back and, and kick, kick their the ass of all of Golden Harvest yeah. for this one. Jesus. <sighs> Roper, Williams, and Lee. The Deadly Three penetrate the secret chambers of an evil island empire. What do you know about Han? He lives like a king on that island, totally self-sufficient. A fortress without walls, 
protected by an invincible army that needs no ordinary weapons. This is Enter the Dragon, the first martial arts film produced by a major Hollywood studio. John Saxon is Roper. He was in it for the money. U.S. karate champion Jim Kelly as Williams. He was there because he had no choice. Black Belt Hall of Fame undisputed martial arts champion and international film star Bruce Lee. His job was to get them out alive. I'm hoping you'll join us, represent us in the United States. You want me to join this? Roper, Williams, and Lee. Just when they think they've broken the secret of the island, they find there is no escape from the inscrutable Han. Warner Brothers presents Enter the Dragon, where the world's greatest martial arts athletes meet the ultimate challenge with the most ancient and deadly of weapons, the human body. Enter the Dragon from Warner Brothers. Okay, so we're going to finish on Enter the Dragon. We can actually make this relatively quick because it's the one that most people have seen and we have gone kind of overboard on this one. Mm -hmm. Also, I don't really have that much to say about it. It's kind of a meandering film about a fight tournament. Yeah. It's like he's an investigating policeman and he goes to this fight tournament run by a guy with a fake hand. He's kind of a a subcontracted private detective. But he's also from a Shaolin school and it's a personal vendetta seeking another... uh, guy from the Jedi Order who uh, defected. He's looking for Count Something Dooku. Like right, okay. Imagine a 70s Bond movie. Okay, I'm there. Okay. I'm thinking The Man with the Golden Gun. Yeah, that that's certainly a contributing element. Um, and instead of... James Bond. Roger uh, Moore. Ro- is it Roger! Roger Moore in Man with the Golden Gun. Okay, instead yeah. of Roger Moore, we have Bruce Lee. And the uh, scripting around his dialogue and interaction is adjusted slightly for the fact that instead of being a British spy, he is a Hong Kong sort of detective, question mark? Yeah. Uh, who's being hired by a private spy organisation. A Charlie's Angels, if you will. Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, who, th- th- it's it's really weird. They, they devote more explanation to what this organisation does and how they operate than is really entirely necessary for the narrative of the film. Mm. They do also tie it in with his mother and sister. Mm. Is, is, is his, his sister I died? Think his sister was... I think she was working for them as well and mm. got killed as, as well, part of the investigation. She she gets to have a full action sequence. She, she kicks ass and she reminds me of Michelle Yeoh in Tomorrow Never Dies, mm. who I think had the same name of Wei Lin, didn't she? Uh, da, 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 da. No, it's Mei Ling. Yeah, Mei Ling is, is one of the other Yeah, she's Wei Lin in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. Uh, she uh, like kicks a whole bunch of guys' asses on the street, then runs into a warehouse, kicks some more, which is, again, that's Michelle Yeoh, um, and... Which is again the scene uh, mirrored in Tomorrow Never Dies. But then she loses, gets a big old shard of glass, and effectively commits seppuku with it. We don't get to see it, but it's very much implied. And it's like, oh, we almost had a, a lady character there mm. in one of these movies that actually yeah. does something. But it does kind of feel like. They fridged her to give him a reason to do his thing. <laughs> they did, but. <laughs> I would compare it more with the death of Alec Trevelyan at the beginning of Goldeneye. He wasn't there. We never get, like, dramatically speaking, 
Bruce Lee's character of Lee should have been there to witness it so that he could yeah. be dramatically invested rather than I having him so, told, yeah. told he about it. told about it afterwards. Okay. So I suppose right, it's like right. it's like Alec Trevelyan in Goldeneye. Only she does she come back from the dead? No. No. Well then it's not like Alec Trevelyan in Goldeneye. Uh, I just meant in the sense Is she the that villain? He's, he's no, I just meant it's in a the sense that he loses somebody. Yes, but it's a woman. To him. The only female ever. Alright, fair enough. <laughs> I'm trying to be No, fine. not giving this film the benefit of the doubt. This is the one everyone always goes on about, Enter the Dragon. It is in no way Fist of Fury. Yeah, but it is It is basically a lesser Bond film with Bruce Lee in it. And martial arts, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, uh, there's also John Saxon there as Roper. He's a white guy. He, has, he is uninteresting in every way, and the camera lingers on him because white people need a John Saxon, the guy who was the sheriff in Nightmare on Elm Street... There, that's our martial artist. That's our avatar. Yeah, it, no, I'm reminded of Raymond Burr just... in the Godzilla American remake. Yeah, where like, gotta stick him in, otherwise white people won't know what to look at. It's not just about him though. There are lots of American characters in this, and they have way more time than they need. There is the the guy who runs this spy organization. There's like a five minute scene where the dude has breakfast in bed. Some somebody brings him a cup of tea, and I'm sat there thinking, well, okay, this is the framing for something significant mm. to happen. But there are several minutes where it's just them bringing his tea in and him drinking his tea. Yeah. And then there's the character of Williams, played by Jim Kelly, and he is again kind of depicted as a jive turkey. He's coming in there with flares and a massive afro, mm. but, but they develop it a little bit. He gets do. a little bit more to do. He he sort of fends people off. He's doing his own investigations. Isn't yeah, he? and he's he's a hero character in yeah. this rather than so just this being is someone a for black audiences to go. Yeah, there is a moment when two racist cops are like, "Get out of the car there!" and he gets out of the car, kicks both their white asses, and then drives off in their police car (laughs) and it's like that must have gotten like standing ovations in Harlem yes and then this guy at the end of the line gets killed off camera by the big boss who ends up like hanging him lynching him and then lowering him his corpse into a pool of piranhas just to convince John Saxon to work for him because he's like if you don't I'll kill you and then feed you to piranhas that's what the end of the road is for Williams, this mm. potentially great black character who could have fought back-to-back with Bruce Lee. Fuck this film for that decision. Fuck this film for that decision. I will feed you to my piranhas, and he's already dead. <laughs> it's like, oh, you really have thought of everything. Yeah, okay, here's your thing, but know your place. I, I could be wrong. Maybe they were like, we really need a great black hero. Oh, we accidentally killed him. We just didn't figure out any way that we couldn't just unceremoniously kill him and feed him to piranhas and lynch him. Fuck. Fuck that decision. Fuck this movie. I, I, don't, I don't hate it, but it, it was just boring the whole way through. And the fact that it was the last film we worked on, I can't not inextricably link Lee's eventual death with what happened here. And if this film never existed, mm. then... Perhaps he might not have died. You know, it's that same situation with um... Anton Yelchin played Kyle Reese really quite well in Terminator Salvation, but Jai Courtney played him in Terminator Genesis not well. We said if Anton Yelchin had been working on a new Terminator movie, perhaps just little tiny butterfly effect things in his life would have been different and he wouldn't have ended up getting into that automobile accident. Either way, if I could go back in time and send a fax to both of these men, I would. <laughs> Of course, they'd be very puzzled because 
particularly in 1973. Now, obviously, fans of uh, Enter the Dragon will be horribly affronted that I've dismissed it so hard, but it's hard to come off of Game of Death and feel anything good. Mm. That, that that film soured everything. Yeah, uh, because that's... It's potentially it's the legacy. The Game of Death represents what how Bruce Lee has been misused since his death, mm, yeah. and used to make money for people Absolutely. who just don't care. There, there was another. I, I think it was a different studio managed to get some footage of him and used it to make a Game of Death two, yeah. which is not really linked to Game of Death at all. But basically, they saw the makers of Game of Death do. But more or less that same thing. Yeah. And when I want to do that too. Vultures. Fucking vultures. Mm. And um, here's the thing that breaks down, though. It doesn't matter what I feel about Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon brought Bruce Lee to the world stage. And the fact that he died before it was released had that Heath Ledger, everyone's got mm. to go and see this yeah. factor. If he hadn't died before this came out, it still would have been big because it was his first American production after it was like, oh, who's this Bruce Lee fellow? But it wouldn't have been huge like it actually was. And the ripple effect of Americans watching martial arts movies because of Bruce Lee led to the thriving martial arts industry out of uh, Asia. These films were absolutely instrumental for us Westerners embracing the East in that regard, in that terms of entertainment. It took a long fucking time to really get past the whole, like, you know, bad dubs and, you know, awful quality films. But the way it is now is so wonderful and so far up the ladder from when they started. If we hadn't had Bruce Lee do that, it would have had to happen some other way. I would suspect Jackie Chan would have maybe get, gotten people's interest that way, and people would have seen uh, kung fu movies as more as comedies, maybe, and less as you know the one hard guy who's very intense, which is what Bruce Lee is. All of those white guy karate films in the 80s wouldn't have happened in the same way because there wouldn't have been that need for a Jean-Claude Van Damme, for a Chuck Norris, mm -hmm. for a Steven Seagal. Yeah, and and it, there were obviously other actors within them who got launched as well. Chuck Norris's career. That I'm not particularly fussed about. No, 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 I know. But what I mean is that provided... Yes, the they all owe a lot to Bruce Lee. For all of that yeah. white guy karate, like you said. I mean... If there's mullets or GTFR. The, uh, for all the waste of Jim Kelly that uh, Enter the Dragon represented, it launched his career. He got a three-picture deal and ended up doing um, black exploitation films. Yeah. There are a couple of neat bits in uh, Enter the Dragon. There's a bit where uh, a guy on a boat's just getting all arsy with uh, Lee and challenging him to a fight. And Bruce is like, well, we can't fight here. We need to get somewhere a little bit more space. Uh, how about down there in that rowboat? So the guy gets down to the rowboat and Bruce Lee's like, well, okay then. And then just, you know, reels the rope out, get, you know, putting him out to sea. And the guy's just stood in the rowboat going, ah! It's a great little moment. <laughs> Yeah. And I think, yeah, he like says before he even does it, you know, the best thing about fighting is not fighting. And then yeah. they eventually don't fight as Absolutely. a result. But, you know, this the, is what you do with a loud mouth prick. The mirror maze is iconic. Yeah. The end when he goes, goes through this sort of funhouse mirror thing, the whole aesthetic of it was copied shamelessly by the uh, uh, United Artists for The Man with the Golden Gun. I don't know how fast they knocked out that film or just because basically the villain in this... Han is is basically the Asian Christopher Lee. Mm. He's got a great presence to him, and he's kind of gloating. He's not. I mean, obviously, Mortal Kombat comes from this because uh, Midway were like, right, if we took this and we took Big Trouble in Little China and we mashed them together, so that Lo Pan is holding this kung fu contest, this martial arts of the tournament called Mortal Kombat. Mm. <laughs> 
um, then like that, all of that came from this. But like again, that's that small fry that the Mortal Kombat series that is small potatoes relative to the kick and the boost that the martial arts industry was given as a result of Lee's presence in these five films, but specifically Enter the Dragon. Hmm. Yeah. And also on the the sort of Bond villain element, Grey Sue, White Cat, artificial hand. Yep. He's got like he switches his artificial hand. I mean he's Doctor No, he's also Blofeld, he's got the yeah, like I say the White Cat. And um, he's a bit Dr. Evil, and he's a bit like... He's a lot Dr. Evil. (laughs) Pit full of piranhas, come on. And I suppose the interchangeable hand was Teehee in Live and Let Die Mm. a couple of years beforehand. So they're copying Bond, and Bond's copying them. There is a lot of snake eating its own tail going on here, I think. Um, But I also noted that most of the fights in this were shot from the waist up. Like you got Bruce Lee doing his thing, and... You can't fucking see it. He's a kicker. He is a kicker. And from the looks of it, the uh, director, Robert Klaus, uh, was the man who they brought in to do all of the other 90% of Game of Death. Mm. So you could see why I might have a particular vendetta about against this guy. I'm sure he wanted to be respectful. His work came off as not so. Although he wrote Dragon the Bruce Lee story. Also directed China O'Brien and Jim Carter. And directed Ironside for one episode. Ironside is that one with a... So yeah, that's that's Bruce Lee's quintet filmography. Uh, my ranking for them uh, is Fist of Fury at the very top mm-hmm. by some way. Yeah. By a long way, really. That is the one you guys need to see. Way of the Dragon, if you're curious, for that Chuck Norris fight. And the arsing about's fun, but uh, it's not really the kind of film I would normally recommend. Uh, Enter the Dragon under that, because it's kind of historically important, even though as a film it's kind of boring. Mm. But we've seen this done so much better. The Paul W.S. Anderson Mortal Kombat film is leagues ahead of Enter the Dragon. We're going to talk about that at some point this year. Under that, The Big Boss, which, like I say, most of the movie is Bruce Lee not fighting and just everyone else talking or getting into not particularly great fights. And at the end, he finally just sort of reveals himself to the world. And then there's the, uh, below the Big Boss, there is an infernal abyss about a million miles wide. Then there's the concept of a literal hunk of feces that smears itself all over whatever it touches. And then beneath that is Game of Death. What would your ranking be? Any different? Would you include the feces? <laughs> I would prefer not to watch the feces if possible. Um, I think I might prefer Enter the Dragon a little bit to Way of the Dragon. Okay. Just in terms of it, it feels better it, made. Yeah. Way of the Dragon wins a lot of points for me with that dramatic moment yeah, at the end. Yeah, no, it does. But I think Enter the Dragon is possibly a little bit easier to watch, mm. let's put it Enter the way. Dragon is more competently made the whole way through. Yeah. Although Way of the Dragon has a fight scene in it where you can see Bruce Lee's legs properly. <laughs> Which is something that you would think would be quite important. You'd imagine. Yes. Also, it has a cat factory. So. <laughs> yeah, true. I'd say, yeah, the, the, the dragon films, shall we say, are pretty close. Okay. And then the big boss. And then the big boss. And, and then, then the infernal abyss and then the game of death. Yes. Right. 
so like I said, this is not the end for Bruce Lee uh, and us talking about him. We will be back with uh, Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, which we do recommend you guys watch. It's uh, it it holds up, and it's it's uh, an Asian man, a very important Asian man, dealing with racism in America in the sixties uh, and seventies, and that's relevant, too relevant. Not too keen on the director, who's had some pretty horrible things reported about him. But the film itself, Jason Scott Lee's full-throated performance, Lauren Holly's wonderful in it. It's both of them at their best. And as I said, effectively, Bruce Lee's life was Street Fighter. He went from fight to fight to fight, apparently, fighting all these exotic people. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's very dramatic. It's very melodramatic at times, but it's it's worth drinking in. And until something better than this comes along which establishes what bruce lee did throughout his life for a new generation this is going to be the best thing we can get hold of at the moment but it's a story that needs to be retold and we're going to play you out not with any of the music from any of the bruce lee films but something more sensitive the lonely shepherd by george zamfir which is at the end of kill bill volume one a film which owes a great stylistic debt to Bruce Lee. So a big thank you once again to our sponsor for this episode, Pascal Dooley. We hope you're happy with how we handled Fist of Fury and the rest. And a huge thank you, as always, to our $15 patrons who get sponsor credit every week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. out. Thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Bay, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joel Crow, Chris Finnick. Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. Mm-hmm.